right. So we're going to jump into the Great American Bash 1990. Uh, if you've been listening to us and you've been hanging out with us, you'll know already that this is technically part two of our Great American Bash discussion. We we discussed the whole build to the actual event uh, last, what was that, Sunday? And we've shown it on our cast watch parties a couple of times now. We've shown the Great American Bash pay-per-view. I've seen this pay-per-view more than any other pay-per-view over the past week, I think. Uh, I've been watching it rewatching things from it. So I feel like I know this one pretty well now. Quick notes about it. It was set in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, I think it had a total. It was like just under 10,000 fans uh, that were there at the thing. It took place on July 7th, 1990, Baltimore Arena, um, and it was a co-production with uh, WCW and NWA. It was under the NWA banner, but it was like the last Great American Bash under the NWA banner. This is right before everything kind of fell apart between the two promotions. Uh, last week, if you followed along um the the big thing that we're going into here is that uh this leads to the huge main event between rick flair and sting and sting had been tapped earlier on um i'm not going to recap obviously everything that we kind of discussed but sting had been talked about for about a year that he was going to be the man but uh unfortunately coming off a challenge to rick flair at uh, clash of the champions where they went to a time limit draw uh sting also had a little uh, stent with the four horsemen and uh, had that big moment at Starcade uh, where he, you know, won the tournament, right? And uh, that was Starcade, wasn't it? Did I just yep. mess that up? Future I don't shot. know why I'm questioning myself. <laughs> Starcade 89, future but, shot. Uh, uh, he wins it and wins the title shot. Exactly. And so the horsemen kind of wanted to drop it, but he won't let it go so kind of drop from the four horsemen but somewhere along the way there sting actually injures his knee uh pretty badly and uh things get put on hold lex luger gets thrown in place of sting and uh has a has a i thought a, a pretty good match with rick flair at uh was that wrestle war i think um and he was originally supposed to go over on rick flair in that matchup but rick flair actually refused to drop the title to Lex Luger saying that that had been promised to sting. And they took that stuff very seriously in those days. And uh, he would not drop it to Lex Luger. So Ric Flair held on to the belt until it was time. And that time was going to be the great American bash uh, in July of 1990. Um, so this event was basically it was set in Baltimore, which was I, I tried to find out some history of this, and I went back on some podcasts and and that sort of thing with like Jr. and uh, Jim Cornette and guys like that talking about it a little bit. Uh, Baltimore had some history. Uh, Jr. said that like it was a big town, like one of the bigger towns outside of New York that was considered like not quite all WWE, uh, but they thought they could draw a big town. It was like a town where like Bruno had. Uh, Bruno San Martino had dropped the title to superstar Billy Graham there. So it had like some legacy because of that. And uh, so Baltimore was typically on fire and they made like six figures at the gate at this, at this show. Um, their promoter, Gary uh, Juster lived there and uh, JR talks about him a lot and says he promoted this thing completely old school style, like just uh, footwork and had a bunch of contacts in the area. So they packed this thing about as full as they could pack it. So this is back in a time where there weren't many pay-per-views. This is, I think there was only five for NWA slash WCW during that year. 
Uh, this is coming right off of the last one would have been in May, which was Capital Combat, uh, which was a bigger deal because RoboCop made an appearance and, uh, you know, he's a celebrity. So no, weren't getting many celebrities back then. It's uh, often considered, I mean, I've seen it on lists as far as like when you try to look up best NWA pay-per-views of all time and uh, the, it gets listed along there. And as Jake was pointing out in the chat, Baltimore is also part of the uh, mid-Atlantic scene. So that's also why it's got the, its roots in the NWA as well. Uh, so other interesting things I came across like during this time, and you guys jump in whenever, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling here, but uh uh, around the fall of 89 through February of 90, uh, Dusty Rhodes had had booking rights before and then Flair picked them up. And so they actually considered this like one of the best wrestling periods or something, I guess, from that time. Like Flair put on like booked great matches. That was the thing. But you were starting to see a little bit of a decline uh, during that time. And uh, somewhere along the way, as Jim Hurd was in power and, and that sort of thing, uh, you'd begin to see the first in the history of Ric Flair and Jim Hurd, where they don't get along very well. Ric Flair was stripped of the book and uh, had tried to leave during that time. And they went back to like a committee uh, of booking until they decided to bring in, in mid-May, they brought in uh, Ole Anderson as the, the booker for WCW. Uh, now, when it comes to Ole Anderson, uh, I got a lot of my information there from Jim Ross talking about that. Uh, one of the things that uh, Ole was good at was great product knowledge. Uh, he was good at developing villains, but he had no people skills. And the inmates were running the asylum during this time, and he just didn't care. So a lot of the matches, I didn't realize this as much as I, I love this pay-per-view, and I've seen it so many times now, but one of the big... Uh, criticisms of this pay-per-view is uh that it it's didn't have a lot of steam as far as storyline goes like flair and sting was the match like that was the big one that had the big fight feel that we talk about all the time and that sort of thing the other matches were kind of just there they were thrown together you know there were exciting matches don't get me wrong and and arguably one of the best matches you know is not even the main event but there wasn't as much storyline build to these things. I'm sorry. I was just saying, you see, you see some gems in there and some really uh, curi curiosity pieces. Like uh, we talked about the uh, Tommy Rich Harley race match, which is like for fans of history, like J Cal or somebody like that, man, that's going to be really interesting just from a historical standpoint, given the their history and everything. And then you have like uh, Tom Zank wrestles in that. And you have the iron Sheik makes a presence in this, uh, but None of these really have a, 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 a contemporary context uh, in 1990. They're just kind of a, it's sort of odd, um, you know, or, or, yeah, at, I mean, or at best the storyline, the story, the story writing was very, 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 very thin. Yeah. Um, JR talks about a lot that, that he tried to offer ideas and suggestions. Oli was kind of resistant to a lot of ideas that other people gave him and that sort of thing. And, and he, he, this is where JR said he was like really learning that if you didn't make it like to some people, if they didn't create it, then they weren't interested in it. And uh, then he also said, Oli seemed to have a fear of change and doing anything new, trying anything. Um, so 
he, he didn't seem to talk so much. I mean, it sounds like uh, he, he buried Ole, and I don't think he was trying to bury him necessarily, but he just said that Ole just kind of had this, like, attitude of, like, if if Jim Hurd even suggested anything, he's like, oh, I don't care, whatever, I'll just write it down. That's fine, we'll just do that. And, like, there was no, like, extra thought put into anything that was done. Um, they, I, I think I saw in, in one thing that, like, and prior to this, like in events leading up to this, um, you know, JYD had been booked a lot. Um, Junkyard Dog was like a top baby face uh, or in a, in a good baby face position, but then was kind of uh, dealing with his own issues with substances and that sort of thing. And then would just like no show or like book himself on an indie promotion and be like, actually, these guys are going to pay me more. So I'm not showing up to the WCW thing. And then Ole would be like, all right, whatever. And then, then he'd like try to get Luger and Luger would be like, nah, my kid's got a baseball game. So I'm going to that. And so like, they'd have trouble like filling in a main event and stuff. And I, I think I saw like Jim Cornette dealing with some frustration. And I think I actually tried to leave during this time too. Cause it was just like constantly up in the air. Like what was even going on, you know, like during like their regular run of shows, like leading up to this event. So it, it sounds for anybody who thinks, I guess that, that things, we're just we're just like this in the late '90s or early 2000s with WCW. It sounds like this was this was kind of the case, like early on, just like uh, so many uh, bosses and that sort of thing. Uh, in fact, the biggest one was was Flair, who it was very well known in WCW at the time was unhappy and was pretty much ready to get out. Um, so. There was a, I, I look back in like some observer stuff from Meltzer and in Wade Keller's PW Torch, and uh, both guys talked a lot about the expectation was that if Flair was going to drop the title at Great American Bash, his contract was up at the end of July and he would be gone and he would be in the WWF like he was he was planning on heading there. So that was the theory for everyone during the time, at least on the inside. Um, Another person who had just quit right around that time was Cactus Jack. Uh, Cactus Jack had been booked in a lot of stuff, and uh, he uh, just felt like he was going to be booked poorly and uh, had had the conversation with Jim Ross, and he dropped out. All of his planned angles and that sort of thing actually ended up going to Elegante. And uh, so this was a guy that was uh, – a former basketball player like uh was getting cut by the Atlanta Hawks because he wasn't so good at that and uh he he was a guy they meant it's like CNN center and uh they wanted to use him because he's huge and they wanted to make their own Andre the Giant but without any thought of you know let's uh actually give this guy time to develop into a talent and that sort of thing so this is like kind of some of his first big appearances um JR mentions a lot of frustration with with the Flair stuff because what Flair hated the most was that, like, literally the week before this event, he was invited to the White House to sit at the head table with George Bush Sr. And uh, Jim Hurd didn't want to use any of that footage or any of that acknowledgement or um, any of that stuff. It's like South Carolina had had a Ric Flair day like announced and uh wcw refused to acknowledge it and it was just like he was just like this is like what am i even doing here and uh he he had pretty much decided that uh he was going to get the most uh attention from the wwe probably or wwf at the time 
Uh, I feel like I'm talking a lot. Are you guys cool? <laughs> no, you're, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good uh, I'll, I'll think of something and then you'll say it. So now you're doing well, man. This is a good narrative. I, I was going to just add to for context. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know for sure, but I feel like at this time period in 1990, the WCW WWF rivalry was really taking flight. Um, and I, I think even the fact that they were in Baltimore historically at that time, Baltimore was about as far south as WWF would go. And so I feel like part of the, part of the reason they were even in Baltimore was for that competitive aspect, uh, being in a market where WWF had been, um, as opposed to going somewhere, uh, you know, like a Greensboro or something like that, where, where they're more, more familiar and it's more like solid NWA territory. Um, and you know, all, all the Ric Flair rumors about him, you know, people were buzzing about finally getting to see him and, and Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania that next year and things like that. There was a lot of buzz about that. And, you know, I feel like a lot of that led to some of this rushed booking and even with El Gigante, that was part of it too. I mean, they rushed him to the ring and he was, I mean, you could see in this pay-per-view, like he doesn't even do anything. He just kind of stands there because he wasn't ready to do anything, but that was just another indicator of, of the fact that, you know, they, they were wanting to do whatever it took to be competitive with the WWF. And that kind of was to their detriment at this point. And, you know, people, didn't like Ole Anderson as the booker or Jim Hurd. And, you know, it, it kind of, you know, was the beginning of a little bit of unraveling with WCW. Obviously, as we mentioned earlier, the WCW NWA relationship fizzled not long after this. Um, but I think that that's an important piece of context when we look at this pay-per-view. And I, and I hadn't, I didn't know that when I first watched um, Great American Bash recently over the past couple of weeks. And then when I went back and learned a lot of that, a lot of this stuff kind of became a little more clear to me. And uh, I could start to see these little nuances and little things where I'm kind of like, oh yeah, that that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's interesting when you, uh, when, when you start to get some of that context and you look back at it because i just looked at this as like a pretty fun show i I, you know just obviously i wouldn't have been deep into the backstage goings on during that time but yeah i found like uh from the uh pw torch back july 5th of of 90 uh wade keller's talking about how like the talk of rick flair leaving is the talk of wrestling right now it's pretty positive he was going to leave only getting hired on kind of slowed it because he's an ally of rick flair but uh now it's just getting heavier and heavier uh the relationship with jim hurd is no good and that sort of thing and i mean hurd's going to be the guy that even later on when rick flair does stick around like gets him to cut his hair and wants him to change his name to like spartacus or something so he catches up with the times or something ridiculous like like rick flair needs to do that um but anyway so yeah you've already seen the fallout i think the steiners were another uh group that was that was rumored at the time and uh so yeah just problems all around from these guys um the uh the big thing that that seemed to be implicated here was not not just jim her but just that 
that there was a lot of drama and uncertainty in the back all around and uh a lot you never knew who the bosses were and the the vision was is that like in the wwf it's vince mcmahon and you know who you're dealing with at all times you always know who the boss is and you know what you're getting paid and there's no discussion about that it's like hey we're giving you this much money and that's what it is and uh so it was just easier and uh you know most accounts i could get of rick flair were that he is not a good politics guy like he just he never has been he doesn't like that stuff he's he is a uh he just likes to party he likes to drink and he likes ladies and that's all he wants to think about <laughs> he wants to go wrestle when it's time for him to wrestle and otherwise he wants to drink and have have a good time and so he didn't like the drama pretty much yeah. And say what you want about like Vince McMahon, uh, but at least Vince McMahon is a wrestling guy. Jim Hurd was not even a wrestling guy. I mean, he was, a, a, I guess, he was a, a regional manager or a district manager of Godfather's Pizza or Domino's Pizza or something like that and had no background. And uh, you can't just put someone in there just because they've got some business savvy into wrestling and think suddenly this guy knows what he's doing with talent and, 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 uh, I mean, wrestling is a performance sport and you have to have people that know the sport to, to get in there and, and pull strings and make decisions. And Jim Hurt obviously wasn't that guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and uh, actually, I see Jay Cal in the chat mentioning another thing, saying that Tully Blanchard should have been a much bigger deal. Tully Blanchard was another big guy in this in this whole thing. Like, uh, obviously, during this time, that they Tully and Arn had gone to the WWF and – had wrestled for a bit there with brain busters, but uh, now I didn't research the complete details, but it sounded like there was a drug test issue with Tully and that caused the cut from, or the non-renewal of those guys in WWF, but Arn was brought back in. Um, I think Arn was brought back in with a little bit of a pay cut and he took, he took sort of a cut there, but uh, Tully said that the amount that he was offered was insulting. And uh, he just wouldn't do it. Now, there was speculation on if he would have played ball for a little bit, if that number would have just gone back up and they were just testing the waters. But uh, obviously the four horsemen were going to try to come back around. They would have rather had, had Tully during that time to have the, the team be Tully and Arn uh, with Flair and Wyndham and then managed by Ole. Uh, but this is where you get to the point where the four horsemen kind of seemed to start to be a little less than from, from all accounts. I saw just that, you know, because of the, the deal not working out with Tully, they brought in Sid. And uh, so, you know, it just never felt quite the same um, for them. And, uh, and I guess you could sort of see that in this one since they don't have as huge of a role They're They're there. I mean, obviously, but uh, it just, just wasn't quite the same as uh as people were used to um the only other thing i want to mention going into it is uh for context is just like right on the other side of this there was a lot of accusations that w uh wcw and nwa were like copying uh the wwf at this point because they had crowned ultimate warrior as their champion or were like pushing ultimate warrior right to the top there and uh, so they thought some people were saying that this was some sort of reaction to that, that Sting was going to be uh, the new top guy in WCW. But uh, every account I could find or anybody talking about that very situation said, 
fully sticks to the story that no dusty Rhodes saw sting at clash of the champions in that match with rick flair and was that that's a guy that's the number one guy he's he's gonna be money he's he, he it was like that day they planned to push him to the very top one at some point and uh and if any if there's any complaints that they have it's that they missed their timing just because of the injury they just didn't get him there as quick as they would have liked to have or as when he was as hot as they would have liked uh Right. But I think watching this it, match, I'm mean, surprised too that the Ultimate Warrior and the Sting and Sting had similar trajectories. I and mean, the Ultimate Warrior had had done work in world class as Dingo Warrior and all that. And he he had, he was he had a good look, and and that was what the WWE was going for. WWF was going for at the time. But you know, it's very clear in the record that at this point, Flair and Dusty were only willing to give the title to two other people, which would have been either Sting or or Barry Windham, and that's it. So. Um, uh, if it hadn't been Sting, it would have been Barry. Uh, so this is not – this is the, the NWA is never reactionary. Everybody else is reactionary. Right. So let's let's talk about the card. Uh, let's just jump into it. I mean, just the actual events are there. We could try to give context where we are, uh, where we can. Uh, I – you know, I was going to dig into everybody, but I thought Doc Stinson might have some more information too possibly on this and, uh, and maybe will, but uh, – so, like, like for instance, there was a dark match at the opening of this thing, and it was uh, Dave Sierra versus uh, Mr. X. I had never heard of either of these guys, just in my uh, uh, limited uh, knowledge, but uh, did find out Dave Sierra was actually the Cuban assassin, so I had heard that name before. But uh, uh, as far as I could tell, I, I mean, I haven't seen the match, but I've heard nothing to write home about, but that that existed, so just just so that's on the table um you had jim ross and bob coddle on the call uh which was cool i thought both of these guys did an amazing job uh i, I love the voice of gary michael capetta as the ring announcer uh gordon Soley's uh there doing interviews and uh your referees are randy anderson nick patrick and mike atkins uh the very first match on this card was uh official match on the card was brian pillman versus Buddy Landell and uh, Brian Pillman uh, hits the flying crossbody for the win uh, over Buddy Landell. Uh, Dave Meltzer gave this uh, two and three quarter stars. Uh, just just so you know, I've got Dave Meltzer star rating. So I hope you guys were really excited about that because I'll give them to you. <laughs> but uh, two and three quarter stars for Dave Meltzer. Uh, it was cool, like seeing the fly. I, I remember thinking. Brian Pillman was like the most high-flying acrobatic SOB in the world. But you can just tell like at this time, that flying body press is a big deal that he hits that thing on Buddy Landell. Um, I am curious about what you know, Doc, about Buddy Landell, like as far as this nature boy gimmick. Like what, what is he doing here? That seems like a, a right. poor decision. <laughs> No, um, uh, Buddy Landell was a legit guy. There was even some talk, uh, Buddy Landell in his shoot interview, I think with the RF video talks about there was even some conversation at one point about them discussing putting the belt on him. Ric Flair actually really appreciated Buddy Landell and liked the gimmick. And one, at one point, Buddy Landell wore the national championship. He was managed by J.J. Dillon. Uh, the other person in J.J. Dillon's stable, of course, was Tully Blanchard, uh, Tully Blanchard Enterprises. And, uh, and, I mean, Buddy Landell, Buddy Landell was over like Rover, man. He was, he was cool. He, uh, uh, 
he uh, they ended up not putting the belt on him, according to Landell now in his shooter interview. And I've, I've not heard Flair. I don't think I've heard Flair verify this, but Landell said that he missed the call because he was basically cracked out. He was cracked out on cocaine, and, and he uses that as to leverage his, you know, sort of public service announcement about being being clean and not letting opportunity pass you. I just thought this was interesting because you see this match. Um, uh, Brian Pillman is on the ascent. He would come in, uh, you know, in the Cincinnati Bengals trunks. He had this really amazing run where he had this undefeated streak going on. He eventually, I think, loses that streak to Lex Luger, if I'm not mistaken. But Buddy Landell was in decline. And uh, uh, Jay Cal points out that Buddy Landell had terrible demons, which he did. And this is something that that badly damaged him and it would eventually kill him. Um, Landell uh, had something of a of a recuperation in his career. I think he wrestled for Smoky Mountain for a while. Um, ended up uh, becoming an evangelist and and uh, trying to do some good work there. And then eventually, with some health issues and some other things, had a, a died tragically not too too long ago. But I actually always liked Buddy Landell and uh, and Flair and Buddy Landell cut some great promos. Man, where. Uh, you know, Flair would always call Michael P.S. Hayes the poor man's Ric Flair, and he would say the same thing about Buddy Landell. But uh, evidently, uh, behind the scenes, there was a great deal of personal respect between the two. And uh, Ric Flair would tell Buddy Landell, hey, if you're going to be this person, if you're going to carry this, you've got to act the part. You've got to come in business suits. You've got to carry yourself with a degree of professionalism and dignity, which which that 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 standard is for really, really for all of us is the standard for what a good – world champion is it's the kind of standard that adam pierce would carry with the dignity and not necessarily business suits but hey i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna maintain that seriousness and, and elevate the company by my person adam pierce did that well dan severin did it dan severon <laughs> did it and uh and certainly nick aldis does it now um but uh this is not a this is not like a flute this is really when you're looking at buddy landell you're looking at someone who's got a really important place to uh, or part to play in in the National Wrestling Alliance, and uh, again, he had demons, or there, he would have been much better. But, but again, not to not to filibuster, but evidently, according to Landale, there were talks about actually putting the belt on him for a time, and uh, and then uh, I see that uh, uh, Jay Cow is asking me to tell about the other Nature Boy. That would be the Nature Boy Paul Lee, uh, who has a uh, who has a. Uh, uh, quite an active persona here in the Southeast and has done some Smoky Mountain work. He's a good friend of mine, actually one of my best friends. And we've, we've known each other for quite some time. Oh, he's talking about Charles. I uh, see WWE. <laughs> talking about little, the little Nate Charles Robinson, but yeah, we can talk about Polly and Charles Robinson at, at, a, at a later time. But uh, there have been many people that have worn that nature boy uh, title. It's not just been Polly or Buddy Rogers or Buddy Landell or Rick Flair. There have been others too, uh, though, you know, Buddy Landell, uh, Flair and Buddy Rogers are probably the big ones. But to me, this is one of those ones where we're talking about not a lot of great story writing going on, but some really interesting gems in there. Brian Pillman, who's on the ascent to become one of the most important names, and Buddy Landell, definitely in decline by this point. Uh, but, you know, hats off to Buddy Landell, one of the greats, one of my favorites. Well, actually, what you're saying backs up a little bit. I, I thought it was interesting that uh, – I just thought maybe he was way off, but I guess not. Uh, Wade Keller wrote about this match uh, that he thought the finish to this match was very surprising because he had been writing that Landell could actually end up being Flair's replacement someday. And uh, so he seemed a little put off by this too. 
And I uh, thought it was weird yeah. that Brian Pillman went over, but I was just put off by the fact that he was like, looks like he's directly ripping off Ric Flair, like just going with the, the hair and the robe yeah. and everything. Well, I mean, that's it though. The nature boy, the nature boy gimmick. Um, it is that though. And, and it's not just, you know, I mean, people say that the player ripped off Buddy Rogers, Buddy Rogers cer- certainly had his own little spin on it. He wasn't going woo. You know, Rick Flair tells us where he got that from, but certainly the bleach blonde and the attitude and the strutting around that it's not a really a ripoff. It's uh it's just, that's your character. You know, that's the moniker that you take. And Buddy Landell was in that tradition of, uh, of nature boys and Paul Lee in, here in the Southeast, he does the same thing. He, uh, He's the he calls himself the real nature boy Paul Lee, and actually there's a uh, there's some pretty interesting footage on YouTube where Ric Flair gets into the ring and presents Paul Lee with uh, a, a copy of the Ten Pounds of Gold and says, "Hey, I acknowledge that this is the new nature boy," and it's pretty interesting because there's another guy that you might recognize standing in the ring when that happens, and that's none other than yours truly, uh, the good Doc Doc McLovin Rob Stinson. I was there that night <laughs> in the ring. Really? Were you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> so see, this is what this is why we hired the doc because uh, we get some, a lot of insight and uh, even matches just like this with Brian Pillman and uh, Buddy Landell. Uh, the uh, next thing that happens is a uh, well. Will, did you have anything you wanted to add about the Brian Pillman match? I didn't mean to overlook you there. No, I I just you know as well thought it was interesting to to start start the show with a nature boy match and end the show with a nature boy match. I was just trying to think of, you know, the, the, the modern day equivalent, you know, if someone came into the NWA uh, and they were the national treasury, the dealer, Joe Schmo, like it would just be really weird. You know, it just wouldn't. Uh, yeah. And I get what you're saying, Rob, about, you know, it's not necessarily a gimmick. It's almost like a genre or a, a personality or whatever. Um, but Ric Flair just historically has made that so famous. It's really hard to, if you're a, if you're a, a, a modern wrestling fan, and that's obviously a name that you know, or even just, a, I mean, people in culture know the nature boy Ric Flair. And to see someone else doing that same gimmick, it really does come off as like a ripoff. But here in that context of that history really shines some light on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, another thing, since we're pointing out weird things about this show, too, I noticed that, like, in none of the matches, like, literally none of the matches. Can you, can you hear me? Oh, yes. hey, there you are. Yeah, okay, I just thought you were, like, real squitty-eyed for a second. So No, the, the, <laughs> my, my internet here is going in and out, so it, it does that from time to time. I was going to say, you're absolutely right, Will. Today, in, in, in 2020, it does seem weird. But remember, Buddy Lindell, he gets his start in the early eighties and Ric Flair was already important, but he was still, you know, he, he, he was not Ric Flair. I mean, by 86, 87, Ric Flair was a cultural icon for sure. But, but Buddy Landell is already, you know, he's active in 83, 84, 85 and 86. And he's doing that nature boy thing too. Uh, So, so for someone in 1990 that had been like, like a J Cal today, who has been studying this thing. That would be very appropriate to see Buddy Landell in there. And it wouldn't have been off putting, um, Buddy Landell was calling himself the genuine nature boy or the real nature boy back in 86 and 87, uh, challenging Ric Flair. And that was sort of the theme. I don't know that they ever really got, I don't think that feud ever got to materialize. I don't even know. There may have been, and I, I could be just, I don't know that they ever actually wrestled before. Jake, Jake Cal is going to know that, but, um, 
but uh, anyway, it wouldn't have seemed as strange in 1990. People in 1990, that fan base is going to know very, very well who uh, who Buddy Landell is, and many people are going to be surprised that this upstart Brian Pillman will get the, the win uh, the way he does in that match. Gotcha. Um, so Harley Race comes out, and he cuts a promo, uh, kind of giving a uh, – prediction there that if rick flair is not entirely on his game he's he's gonna be in trouble tonight that sting has everything it takes to beat him and uh rick flair better look out but tonight he's gonna be taking on tommy rich and uh he's gonna and that goes back a long way um and he's gonna deal with him in his own in his own way he says it's interesting to see the uh at this time i guess a seven-time world champion harley race um and uh, the next matchup is Captain Mike Rotunda versus Iron Sheik. Uh, Meltzer gave this one uh, three quarters of a star and uh, says that uh, he says that Sheik looks like he's pregnant. That was the main note that I got out of that. And um, the, um, the Wade Keller version of this is uh, – this match, although a singles rematch from WrestleMania 1's tag team match had little meaning for most fans. An okay battle of suplexes with a lot of stalling by Sheik. And uh, he was more generous. He gave it a full one star. And uh, the uh, the interesting part for this one for me was, I guess this is in some kind of transition period for uh, Mike Rotunda because it's like he had been the varsity club guy you know later he'll go on to be like irs obviously but at this point he was like a, a boat captain and i had read and i researched this a little bit more that um he originally this match was gonna be mike rotunda versus harley race and uh that was switched up and i couldn't find if this is exactly pinned to this but if not, it's very ironic that they changed this matchup because Mike Rotunda is a uh, boat captain kind of guy in this. But if um, Wade Keller in his uh, pro wrestling torch in the uh, week before this, let's see if I can find this here real quick. Sorry, I had it like right in front of me and then uh, lost it. Uh, this is this is literally the week before uh, Camden County, New Jersey. Harley Race was arrested on. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. He wrote this in the week before, but uh, on June 10th was cited for operating a boat under the influence of alcohol, careless operation of a boat and resisting arrest. Uh, Race was scheduled to return to the NWA on July 7th for the Great American Bash pay-per-view in Baltimore for uh, one match hit a boat from behind on Sunday morning on the Lake of the Ozarks. The accident sent four on the boat that were struck to the hospital, including one woman with two broken legs and her husband suffering, suffering from a collapsed lung and internal bleeding. Two others were treated for cuts and bruises. Two children also on the boat were not injured. Race was not injured, although his boat was completely destroyed in the crash. There is no word as of press time, whether this affects his schedule July 7th date with the NWA, um, though it is expected he will be able to fulfill his commitment. So would have been real weird if Harley race had faced off against boat captain Mike Rotunda in this match, but that, uh, 
you know, not to make light of those poor people, but just anyway, just an interesting side note, I thought. Uh, so we got Mike Rotunda versus Iron Sheik instead. And yes, this is probably on the latter stages of the Iron Sheik uh, being uh, uh, a singles wrestler. In fact, I would say probably by this time, Iron Sheik seemed like he maybe would be more of a an appearance guy, like maybe throw him in some tags, you know, something like that. But uh, that would be my opinion. But uh, I don't know. I'll throw it to you guys. Any thoughts on Mike Rotunda versus the Iron Sheik? Yeah, I think that this was just another example. There was no storyline. There was nothing to hook you in to, and, and have you buy in at all to the fact that they would be fighting each other. And yeah, I think I think the Iron Sheet at this point was was still under contract, and they would bring him back occasionally to put guys over or whatever, and then eventually. Not long after this, I'm pretty sure they just told him to stay home and they would just pay him to stay home um, because just like in matches like this, he wasn't doing anybody any favors. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lackluster match um, and it definitely was an interesting time for Rotunda. Um, and, and I just don't think I don't think the crowd was there. You can tell when you're watching it that there's just no buy in. And when there's no buy in, we talk about it a lot in terms of the NWA. That's why we love it is every match feels important. Uh, every match feels necessary um, and it makes sense. And this was just one that didn't. And the crowd, the crowd showed that. And Stinson's asleep. So we'll move on. Um, <laughs> I, go, I need to go get me another head of refill, another Gary head of refill real quick. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> sure. Give me a half a oh, head. Give me a half a head of Gary. You gotta be careful with that one. All right, we're gonna move on to Doug Furtis versus Dutch Mantel, and and we'll be we'll be there when you get back. I think. Uh, well, I can't leave during a dirty Dutch talk. That's a good point. Uh, there's, yeah. <clears throat> we can we can stall for you, Rob, if you want. We can. <laughs> no, go ahead. Keep talking. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Doug Furness uh, beats Dutch Mantel with a belly-to-belly suplex. Oh, here, here's the thing I was going to say earlier, by the way, uh, that none of these matches, not one of the matches, uh, seems like they ended in the way that you would expect them to end. No, like, finishers. Like, I, I thought that that was just interesting. You know, you were talking about the start and the end. I thought that was interesting about this show. Like, nobody wins with, like, a signature move or anything like that. Like it never yeah. happens. Um, the only one that's arguable for me is possibly the doom match a little later on, because I'm not a hundred percent on what their main signature move was at the time. Uh, and, and maybe Doug Furness, uh, maybe his was the belly to belly suplex, but it's a nice belly to belly suplex on Dutch Mantel to get the win. Uh, Meltzer gives this one uh, one and a half stars. And uh <laughs> Yeah, not not a huge fan. Actually, doesn't even really say anything about it. Uh, and uh, Wade Wade Keller just mentions that it looks like a uh, a solid match. That um, Doug Furness looks like he's got a little promise, and Dutch Mantel has proven himself to be a good early in the card heel to face off against. Uh, Dutch Dutch Mantel would also be a perfect candidate for our sponsor, Manscaped.com. Uh, 
using the code NWAPOD20, or I'm sorry, no, just NWAPOD, gets you 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com. You do not want to go out in, in your tights or mm. your beach attire with, with the hair like Dirty Dutch. Rob can tell you from experience, you just don't want to Man. do that. I thought today, I thought today we were out on the on the Myrtle Beach boardwalk and I was getting dirty looks. And I was like, man, do I not have my face mask on? And then I realized I had my face mask on. I was like, oh, snap. They're looking at me because <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm not manscaped. Yep. It is manscaped.com. Uh, I see J. Cal asking in there. Manscaped.com. Use code NWAPOD for 20% off and free shipping. They have an awesome uh, lawnmower 3.0, and uh, it, it, it will just take care of you. No nicks, no cuts, anything. You can even get Dutch that dirty Dutch hair right off of you with no issue. Manscaped.com. All right. I will, so, clarify, uh, I will clarify that it's manscaped, like past tense.com. Yeah, I mans- thought I was trying to do that there. Like landscaped. With a, with a D at the end. Manscaped. Yes, manscaped. Dot com. You mess with anything else here? I don't know. I don't know where that's going to go. We can't be responsible for your search history if you type it wrong. That's all I'm saying. That's a good point. Uh, and if you happen like, to uh, to Google Manscaped and Dirty Dutch at the same time, that 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 is not me in that picture. That's been doctored <laughs> on your Google images. So, shout out to J Cal who says he's going to place an order right now at Manscaped.com. Make sure you put that D uh, on the end there. Uh, you know that D. Uh, anyway, okay, yeah, but, okay. No, I'm sorry. I get, I get what uh, you're saying. I'm just saying, put the D. It's like if you try to search for like a grandfather clock, but forget the L. You know what I'm saying? It's gonna be some trouble <laughs> on your internet browser history. <laughs> but uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, and you guys have to follow uh, Gary on uh, Instagram just to look at his collection of memes, man. I spend I spend probably an hour a day looking at his memes, man. Yeah. Your wife uh, messaged me the other day and was like, Rob took like 10 minutes looking at this one. Like, I forget which one it was now. Hold on, what, my, my, my wife messaged you, bro? <laughs> what? Hey, my, uh, my wife... My wife can vouch for the fact too that we'll we'll be sitting uh you know chilling after the kids go to bed and I'm catching up on my stories and at least five or six times I'm like I pause on it and I'm like oh look at this meme Gary share and I read it to her and it's like it's like a <laughs> nightly topic of conversation so I w- I will put you over as well Gary go follow Gary on Instagram at this is Gary Horn is that right did I get it right yeah yeah, yeah that's right so at this is Gary Horn. And check out the daily stories. It's good for a laugh. And God knows we all need a good laugh every day. That's right. why I started doing it, man. And, uh, you know, when I was on a Jay-Z Flair show, they were asking about the memes. And I was like, yeah, it started because I was like, okay, I could post about serious crap all the time. But uh, I don't know. I People like to laugh. About the, uh, the one about the uh, the 3D uh, <laughs> ultrasound, dude, I, that had me rolling for probably, probably 45 minutes. I was just like guttural laughing just so it hurt it's so funny <laughs> yeah man. i like uh, i like your it, series it, it is. i liked your series you did with uh pornhub comments that one was, <laughs> those were fun <laughs> that was good 
But yeah, I thought about asking you. I keep thinking, you know, now that I did. Now that we're partnered I'm sorry, up this is this. this is not PG, but I have to say, my favorite one of those is the. Uh, I didn't just come; I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> we're fourteen. I still think about that one to this day. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I keep, I keep thinking that I want you know now that we're partnered up and we talk on a regular basis, asking you where you get them. But I don't want to know how the sausage is made. No pun intended. I just want to. I I want to enjoy them every night on your stories. I don't want to. I don't want to find them. You know where you find them. So I'm going to let you keep curating those and entertaining. Um, By the way, uh, when you say uh, when you say I don't want to know how the sausage is made, that's actually a line from Hamilton uh, in, this, in the uh, the song uh, no is "Room Where It Happened." So shout out, Will. Yep, that's actually a line from my sex life. Baby <laughs> 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 uh, uh, anyway. Dutch. Doug Furnace. Like Doug Furnace. Fired at night. Like this, this is, is going somewhere. Doug yeah, Doug man. Furnace was actually billed as the world's strongest man, right? Our strongest man in the world. Or yeah, something. that's a good trying point. to get us back on track. No Mark Henry there. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, Doug Furnace, belly to belly suplex, pins Dutch Mantel, and that is that match. Hope you guys dug it. Uh, James Lawrence threw in the chat also that apparently WCW, not long after this, I guess, forgot about Sheik's contract and uh, he got renewed for another year and just set it home. Yep. I just forgot about him, I guess. All right. All right. So then next up, you get a classic rematch. This is kind of weird and it still weirds me out every time I've seen it now that it's in the middle of the card because there it is. Harley Race uh, defeats Tommy Rich which I think at this time was kind of an upset. Like, uh, I don't think anybody expected And Harley race hadn't been just like a regular figure, as we mentioned, like he had been kind of out of it and uh, it, uh, but he gets the surprise win with a roll through and uh, rich comes off the top rope. Um, I don't feel like the crowd was as into this as I felt like they should have been. But then again, this is 90 and Stinson can probably vouch for this. I think rich and race were feuding around 81 ish. So like maybe they're just too far separated from it. Uh, JR, I, I tried to look for some information on that. And JR just had some stuff about that, you know, race just was available and it was a big pay-per-view payoff. And, and so he was like, if you if you don't want to book Harley Race when he's available for you to book, then you're not paying attention to wrestling. And uh, as far as Tommy Rich, Tommy Rich had been kind of out of it, but was trying to work his way back um, into wrestling and thought he had an opportunity here um, with Jim Hurd and what they were doing in NWA. I don't think that really paid off for him as much as he had hoped. Meltzer gives it two and a half stars. Um, and... Let's see. That's um. I don't know. I didn't really have much else to add to that. Well, Rich Rich still had some career left ahead of him. He actually had. I think he had. He was in the York Foundation. He was like a a member of the World Six Man Tag Team Championship. So he had enough the world title left in him uh, when this had happened. Uh, Harley Race was certainly on the decline, but he would still have a big role later managing like Vader and and uh, and he had still had a lot of a lot of uh stuff left in him too but but tommy rich would still be a world champion i think twice i think he was like with the j with junkyard dog had it and then uh i was somewhat 
I'm going to Wikipedia this junk, man. But I think that Tommy Rich won the six-man championship, like, not long after this. So, he, it's not like he was, like, an afterthought. It, it, this match certainly didn't have the uh, – it didn't have the value that would it would have had for someone like like me who grew up in Georgia and and remembered the Harley Race Tommy Rich feud, but it was still important to see Tommy Rich working and he would. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna fact check myself, but I think that we well, that's can, cool. And I didn't mean to make it sound like Tommy Rich was a complete afterthought. I don't think that he was treated that way. I don't think either guy was treated like a, a complete afterthought or anything like right, that. Right. Um, the um, I mean, Wade Keller though writes here, uh, Harley Race returned uh, to beat Tommy Rich in six minutes. This was a rematch of their, for their world title bouts in 1981, where Rich won and lost the NWA world title. Some got a charge out of the nostalgia, but it seemed more were disinterested. The finish was surprising. Two and a quarter stars, he gives it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely think, not like a. Go ahead, Will. Sorry. I think I think uh, they didn't promote this match. Was a lot of what I had read, so I don't even think the crowd even was prepared to see the match. So, with that in mind, I, I don't. That could attribute to the lackluster crowd. Um, you know, if there was some longtime fans there that knew the history, they probably would have popped for it. But overall, I don't even know if they. I don't even know if they publicized it, you know, with, for ticket sales or anything. It was kind of, it, it really was kind of an afterthought. And for that reason, crowd wasn't really prepared for it. Again, they're not really bought into it unless they're familiar with the feud that was almost a decade old. And, you know, I, it was a great match. I mean, six minutes, I feel like it was a perfect time. Um, it kept me interested the whole time. Um, if it had been really any longer than that, it might've drug on a little bit, but I think, I mean, those guys are, are top notch still at this point uh, in 1990 and could put on a great match. So uh, it was great, but it's just another victim of little to no storytelling for the current iteration of this match. Um, and it wasn't a title match and the stakes were not there. And, and so but it doesn't I mean, sound like I'm, I'm like completely crapping on. Let me also say that I think I, I, if I'm right on my numbers here, like race is like pushing 50 right here. And uh, he's still, I mean, he looks like he can go with anybody. He, he, he looks good. And I, Gary, I don't think you're crapping on it. I think that, that, the, that the promoters crapped on it. I'm not saying you did. I think, that, like, like Will's saying, I think this was underplayed. This is a match that, like, any three of us and most, like, everybody in the chat right now, we would have paid just to see that match. If that was the – we would have paid to see that. But – this is like right now the promoters are, are booking towards and, and, and they're trying to really serve up things to the younger crowd. Nothing wrong with that. I think wrestling should speak to the younger crowds. But, you know, I remember like in 1990, this was an important match to me. The Harley race Tommy Rich was and, and, and Tommy Rich was not done yet. He still had another several years left where he was important. Now, he wasn't in the single scene anymore, but, you know, he was. He was doing some tag stuff. I think he even turned – yeah, he was in the York Foundation, so he had a heel turn, which is really peculiar for Tommy Rich. Um, but, you know, this was a, this was not a bad a bad match. If it had been marketed and, and, and the story writing had been done properly, this could have been, you know, a, maybe not a semi-main event, but an upper-card match for sure. Well, I think, a, I think an, a, an irreverent modern-day comparison would be Edge and Randy Orton that just happened that was – build as the greatest wrestling match ever which was laughable but i mean that was a feud that was almost a decade ago but 
WWE put storytelling behind it. They had promos cut. They had multiple vignettes telling the history. So even if you didn't live that history, you still had a little bit of buy-in for that match. Um, that This match could have had potential like that, but again, it was just booked terribly. Um, there was just no storytelling there. And that's in, in wrestling, that's going to, that's going to bite you. Hey, I, I just, just want to throw it out there real quick. Uh, just, uh, just, uh, in February of 1991. So this is just six, seven months later, Tommy Rich would win the, the six man championship with the junkyard dog and Ricky, Ricky, Ricky Morton. They would lose it, uh, four months later to the fabulous Freebirds, And then Tommy Rich would win it again in October, uh, uh, October 8th, 1991, as a part of the York Foundation with Richard Morton and Terrence Taylor, and they were the last to hold the title. So he had two more world championships, uh, you know, le- legitimate mainstream world championships uh, ahead of him at this point. Well, that's good to know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a... Uh... It is interesting here. I, I don't know. I, I think I think Will's like on the money as far as like. Oh, and, and you kind of were, were saying this too, Rob. That 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 it just was booked weirdly, like with no no build to it at all. So that that's probably why it suffered in front of the crowd. It's just because, uh, especially in the next match coming up, that crowd does get lively. They just didn't do it in this one for some reason. They didn't get wild for this one. Um, so. Uh, yeah, Jay Cal in the chat's mentioning it'd be like Jeff Jarrett versus Ken Shamrock. It has historic relevance. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so imagine a world. You talked about the six man title. Imagine a world where you got a six man title. Oh, not only do you have a world tag team title, but you have a U.S. tag team title. And, uh, and the very uh, next matchup here is the Midnight Express defeats the. Uh, the wild-eyed Southern boys uh, for the uh, retains the U.S. tag team titles. Um, obviously, the weird part of this match is is that you probably couldn't get away with having a Confederate flag all over your trench coat, like and, and your the butt of your pants when you come out anymore. But uh, I guess they also kind of played that for heel heat in the North during the time. But that aside, this match was fantastic. Like this match was awesome. And uh, this is, I, I would, for my money, and I think for a lot of people, this is actually the best match on the show uh, as far as pure, like a pure wrestling match. Uh, Dave Meltzer just I, notes I took from him, just wrote classic tag match, uh, possibly the best match I've seen in the United States this year. Uh, innovative martial arts, crowd is hot. Uh, or I, I guess what I wrote down innovative martial arts. I think he, he talks a little bit about how it was innovative, the spot they use with the martial arts mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, like, as far as Wade Keller, he says uh, simply the best tag team match I have seen this year. This match saw a relatively new team. The Southern boys introduce their hot moves to the fans and to the express, the express returned with their mainstay moves and some fresh ones also. The fast pace kept fans in the arena on the edge of their seat. This is one of those matches where fans were cheering the wrestling, not necessarily a team. After several sure finishes that weren't, a kick to Armstrong's head by Lane and a small package by Eaton ended the nearly perfect encounter. 
lest we forget Cornette, who was entertaining enough to stand on his own without a match delivering or diverting attention away from him. Wade Keller gave it four and three quarter stars. Dave Meltzer gave it also four and three quarter stars. So almost five star match out of these guys uh, from from the quote unquote experts. So uh, what'd you guys think of Midnight Express versus the Southern Boys? It was great. It was awesome. Uh, definitely, definitely the best wrestling match of this event. Um, match of the year candidate at the time, for sure. I mean, you can tell just in, in Meltzer and Keller's write-ups about it. Um, but I mean, that's the, the spots made sense. It was very well orchestrated. No doubt, Cornette had a had a heavy hand in that. Um, and, and I mean, if you listen to Cornette during this time, like they were not happy in WCW. Um, they really wanted out and, and uh, nobody that had had any wrestling sense was really happy at that time with Jim Hurd, but um, they go out they, they put on a barn burner. Um, the spots were great. The, the pace was perfect. Um, and I mean, this was a mid card tag team title so first of all yeah, I so like, not even the world tag, tag, yeah. tag so, team so so you you guys know where i sit with tag team wrestling for me that's that's top notch and i just i was just salivating at the idea of like oh man there's there's two sets of tag there's two tag title matches in this event like this is incredible um but i mean you know they came out and stole the show and i mean the you talk about the southern boys getting heel heat and depends on whether you you would consider baltimore north or south but um they were over by the end of the match really i mean like you said like they mentioned in the articles like this was one of those matches where people were cheering the wrestling there there wasn't like a like by the end of the match there wasn't a clear uh delineation between like they were booing this team and cheering they were just cheering the spots and they were cheering the the storytelling that was happening in front of them in the ring and that's that's what you want from wrestling that's why we're that's what we love. Oh my God. I mean, that pinfall, by the time this match is over, that crowd like erupts. Like it is unlike anything you will ever hey. see. And I want to give a shout out to Curtis Butler in the chat saying, uh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, one of the best tag team matches in the history of wrestling. I agree. And uh I, I I agree with that. And uh and he does point out too, just for anybody who cares, uh Cornette does go in depth on his podcast. Uh, just the other day, uh, if you want to check that out, they do like a rewatch. So like you can time it with the playing of the match and he does like a, uh, a commentary of the match, but, uh, sorry, I, I think I cut you off. Will. no, I was just, I, I'll just continue putting it over. Cause I'm a, I'm a nerd for tag team wrestling. And this was a clinic, um, from, from not, uh, the midnight express weren't a surprising, I mean, they put on tag team clinics all the time. Um, but the Southern boys were the surprise for me that just how they got over and how they worked together and how they worked um, with the Midnight Express. I mean, I think, I think beautiful Bobby carried the match for most of it, but uh, the, the storytelling was there and it was it, the false finishes. I, I bit on almost all of them. That's how good they were. Um, and we live in an era where, you know, in mainstream wrestling, false finishes are kind of an eye roll. Um, but they did it well. And they reminded me that false finishes when done correctly are, are amazing. And they're a great part of the story. Uh, they weren't overdone. It was just, it was great. 
I don't want to step on Rob here, but I just want to say I'm glad you brought up Bobby Eaton real quick, too, because, uh, man, I, I'm with you. I think we share a love of tag team wrestling. I mean, I've talked endlessly about how Crockett Cup's perfect because I love tournaments and I love tag teams. Um, Stone Cold Steve Austin always talks about Bobby Eaton. Like, I used to listen to his podcast all the time, and he'd be talking about how Bobby Eaton was, like, one of his favorite wrestlers ever. And I never got it because I didn't know. Like, the Bobby Eaton I knew was, like, way later and uh and he just wasn't the same dude now i've had the pleasure of meeting and talking to bobby eaton at crockett cup 2019 uh him and stan lane um and dennis condry uh but man like when we've done these cast watch parties at the suggestion of rob like some of the shows we've watched or some of the shows we've shown like every time bobby eaton is in the damn ring that guy is he could go like nobody else. Like that guy is so, so good. And uh, I see Jake Allen there saying you need to, I, now I need to go back and rewatch. Yeah. If I was going to direct somebody to this show, obviously sting and flair holds a special place in everybody's heart. That's fine. But the actual match, like if you want to see like a match you're going to invest in Southern boys and midnight express, my God. And yeah. And Bobby Eaton is, is by far the all-star of the whole freaking pay-per-view in my opinion. But uh, anyway, I've talked enough, Rob. Uh, yeah. It, uh, it doesn't surprise me that stone cold says that stone cold, you know, was they were, they were he was a tag team contemporary of, of the midnight express in the Hollywood blondes with Brian Pillman. Uh, they had a run and it, he's, he's got extensive tag team work going back to the world-class days and all that. So, you know, he, he knows, and uh, you're absolutely right. Bobby, the, 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 any version of the Midnight Express is arguably one of the greatest. I happen to think the Sweet Stan Lane and Beautiful Bobby Eaton version is the best. And they are, uh, if they're not at their peak at this point, they're certainly close to it. And uh, you mentioned the karate earlier, and they always made a point to say that, uh, you know, that uh, Stan Lane was a black belt, and, and, and that would always kind of manifest itself. And here we have them against the wild-eyed Southern boys, Steve Armstrong and Tracy Smothers, one of the, un, in my opinion, one of the unheralded tag teams, very underrated tag team. And uh, I'm not going to say anything new that you guys didn't say tonight. This is really one of the greatest tag team matches ever. I mean, it's in, in terms of like four guys who can work each other and, and, and go in there and wrestle and tell a story. And you, you got a healthy combination of mat wrestling and high spots and that kind of stuff. It is a very wonderful, just sublime, sublime, sublime tag team match. So, uh, uh, go back by all means. I, I, I'm confident that when uh, J Cal goes back and watches this, man, he's gonna he's gonna give it a, a, a five out of five star on the Alliance blog rating. Uh, so it's it's a great match, guys. It definitely, you know. I mean, there there's some other matches that had more of an emotional appeal to me, like the Harley uh, Tommy Rich match, and of course Flair Sting. But uh, this is a great match. It's a great match. Why don't we can't spend like all night long talking about this match? But I just want to throw back to like something you. <laughs> I want to go back to something else you said about it. One thing I really loved is like we we mentioned the karate spot. It wasn't like that the karate spot was like so athletic it was insane. It's like it's nothing compared to crap you see now. But it's like it meant more. Like it it, it just like just the idea that these guys have been wrestling and then all of a sudden, yeah, there's that idea that Stan Lane is a black belt. Well, it's like, who was it? It was like Tracy Smothers, I guess, like probably that was like on the other side of him. They're like, Oh, well, he knows karate. Now he's tried to throw a kick. Oh, well, Stan Lane wants to challenge him. All. Like, let's do a face off. Let's do a karate face off. And so they like make it a whole thing. And it's just like, 
Uh, I think that's what Meltzer is even talking about. It's just innovative, like how they they use that to make a whole segment of the match just feel like something. And it's not like they're like doing anything insane. It's just you're into it. You're like, oh my god, now they've wrestled. Now I want to see what happens if they go karate on each other. Like it's just it's just awesome to watch. And I hope people will give give it a fair watch when they go back and look at it. And and I, I I'm not addressing anybody here who watches our show or is in our chat tonight. But uh, and I, again, I'm not. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm I'm not trying to sound like a neo Confederate. I'm a Lincoln guy. I'm a U.S. Army veteran. But you know, it was not uncommon in those days for people to use a Confederate gimmick. The Freebirds used it for years, um, and the culture and the times were different. But if you can get over that. And, and, and not let that be off-putting to you, uh, you are going to enjoy this match. I mean, don't let that stand in your way. Not that it would, again, for anybody in here, but, man, what a great match. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm afraid that for many people, just the fact that they're the wild-eyed Southern boys coming out with Confederate flags on their back, that this is going to be off-putting, but it shouldn't be. It, it, uh, uh, at least not for the, for, the, for the storytelling that's going on inside the ring because it's a fantastic match. Well, again, that could be like my, uh, you know, different, different POV, but like I, 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 that got me as far as like, oh, hey, you couldn't do that anymore. And, uh, no, I yeah, and I wasn't, I wasn't much, thinking much, about you much of it. <laughs> but since you raised that, there, no doubt somebody is going to see this or somebody, we, we've been throwing this up for, for two weeks now. Someone's going to look at that and, and be put off because of that. And it was just a different time. I mean, when, you know, when the Wild Eyed Southern Boys came out, they were, in Georgia, they were over, man. And the last thing I thought when I saw them was anything about the, the Civil War. I just thought, hey, they they Southern boys, you know. But uh, it, it shouldn't be uh, off-putting uh, from a wrestling standpoint, from a ring work standpoint, because it really is a fantastic match. No, they were working with what they had. Uh, it's, 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 it's almost a little uh, disappointing that the – I mean, if that was a Matt classic, the next one is a Matt legend. Uh it's the debut of Big Van Vader. Uh, he uh, he uh, comes in to face Mr. Tom Zink. And uh, they do a great oh, intro for Tom Zink. I, I, I heard like Conrad talk about uh, in, in his interview with JR uh, that this was a uh, – they gave Tom Zink the uh, Hogan treatment here because like Hogan was the only one that had like the camera – follow him to the ring, like walk with him down the aisle yeah. and everything. And it's like, I noticed that. <laughs> but completely, I noticed that. yeah. And he was like, but, but completely opposite of Hogan, uh, Tom Zeke was going to die. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> I I love Vader. I, I, love, I mean, I've said it before on the show, but uh, I mean, Big Van Vader was one of the, guys from my childhood that I was actually terrified of and not in any small part because of that headdress. And one of the things that I loved about this match is, uh, so this was his debut, right? He was, he, he had not appeared in WCW before. Um, but the, what I thought was hilarious was, you know, he's, he's got the, the, the horns or whatever it is, that headpiece that he wears, 
you know, brings it down. You guys have all seen it, sets it down, points to it, and the steam shoots out. And JR could just not get it. He was just like, there's no wires connected to that. How it was just like he was J, JR was selling that that headpiece and the steam thing like like more than he had sold any of the moves for the whole night. There's, there's nothing connected. How's he doing that? What is that? You know, and it was just like they put they well they, even Well, I was just gonna say like even weirder though is like Bob Cottle over there just like going off about uh it's a traditional samurai headwear. Oh yeah, that he I'm knew. not a hundred percent sure that's that's accurate, buddy. <laughs> but well, I mean, Vader Vader was coming from Japan, right? And he still worked in Japan a lot after this because I, th- I, th- I think it was like months and months before he would be a regular on WCW. It was a process. I mean, he debuted, and then he'd work odd dates here and there when he was available. But I mean, Japan is where he was making his making his money. Um, and I, at this time he had not, right. He, he hadn't signed full time at this point. Yeah. Uh, according to JR, who was involved in some of these things, like he describes it as like, uh, they, they just, they just knew they liked Vader and, uh, and, and actually heard and only, especially only was a big fan of Hanson and Vader, Stan Hanson and, and Vader and wanted to bring them in. And so, Vader was definitely by far getting more money in Japan. Um, he was, uh, of course, huge there. Same with Hanson. So they were just like, JR describes it as like, hey, we know how this thing ends. This whole pay-per-view ends and it ends with a fresh, new, like young baby face and he's going to need big bads. And uh, who yeah. who are some guys we can bring in? And like Vader was definitely one of those guys. Yeah, and, not, uh, not so to they discount. Were like, not to discount the four horsemen, but this was not at this point in time, this was not like the real four horsemen. Um, there's probably a lot of debate about that, but uh, they definitely, I mean, when you think about it, they needed more like monster heels like that. Um, and so I think, I think that was, yeah, what they were going for. But uh, so here's our tie in, as you were mentioning before, so just a, I think it was just a couple months before this, you talked about Stan Hansen had actually knocked Vader's eye out, like out of the Correct. socket in Japan. And that's an eye for an eye match. Not this crap we're running now in 2020. I'm talking about <laughs> these dudes were pounding on each other and Vader's eye freaking fell out of the socket. What was it? Like, there you go. If you want an eye for an eye match, that's it. That's legit. You can look that up on YouTube. Vader absolutely loses his eye in the middle of the match. Uh, it uh, was it, it, it's still it's still connected. So you know he gets it put back. But, uh, just, just, just dislodged. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, that would have been the end of my match uh, <laughs> if my eyeball <laughs> came out. And I've always it, wondered, hey, like, it. can you still see out of that eye? Like, are you, is one eye staring at the ground? That'd be I'm gnarly, really man. You can like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was still connected. It was still connected to the receptor. So yeah, it's like he was. Hey Gary, well, come. Hey Gary, come over. I'll knock your eye out. We'll check it out. No, well, let's, well, let's not do that. I hate ball. eyeball violence in general. So that was always <laughs> eyeball yeah. violence. And, and, and Jay Cal in the chat points out: not only did it get knocked out, 
he decides the best fix up for it is that he's got to finish the match. So he puts it back in. <laughs> he, he, he shoves it back in the socket. What it's else like, are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're just going to leave it there now? You put it back. I don't. That's what you do when you're out. I would go home. I would call my mom. You can't go home. You're in Japan. You can't just go home. You're in the middle of a match. You just pop, that, you pop it back in and you finish. That's work ethic. Be like, mom, can you pick me up from the wrestling match? My eyeball is out. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, man, uh, but, you know, different like, breed of dude. Yeah, they'd be like, "Dang, Stinson just just got up and just well, he just took his junk and left." I just got out, I took my junk <laughs> and walked out and left. That's it. Oh, oh man, yeah. Uh, so what was what what I enjoyed is like doing the uh, looking back into this and Jr. on the podcast. Uh, so like Wade Keller says says this about the match. Uh, Zeke, and he doesn't mean this as a knock, by the way. I don't think he says Zeke proved that not only can he be a satisfactory tag team champion, but this match showed he would be a fabulous jobber. His facial expressions and selling for Vader were fabulous. Vader was not overly impressive. He played to the crowd a bit. One star. Uh, Dave Meltzer uh, says, uh, well, point is dave Meltzer gives it half a star so less jr was aggravated about I'm aggravated. when he heard this news he was like he was like this match literally accomplished everything we meant for this match to accomplish it's a, it's a squash like, i don't he's like i'm like, not smart enough for you to tell me how it could be booked better to make this guy an unstoppable unbeatable monster badass what, what so were like, they gonna what, what were they happened. gonna do were they gonna have tom zinc get in some really good offense and get vader knocked down several times what's i mean how how are you how are you booking him as this monster heel if z-man is cutting him down for half the match, and then he comes back, and it's a squash match. Squash matches, and this may be an unpopular opinion too. I don't know. Everybody has different opinions in the wrestling community. In my opinion, squash matches absolutely have their place. Not all the time. They, they shouldn't be overdone. But when you're trying to establish a monster heel like Big Van Vader, you got to have that squash match. To me, I'm not giving it five stars as a wrestling match, but I'm saying it's more than one star because you look at it in terms of storytelling and you look at it in terms of everything that happens in the ring matters and is important. This match needed to happen exactly the way it did. It was like, what, a minute and a half, two minutes or something like that? I mean, it was really short. And that needed yeah. to happen to establish Big Van Vader as who they wanted him to be. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I get it, you know. You're, and you're coming off of the greatest tag team match of, of the year, maybe all time, you know, contender. So I get it, but still. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird, especially coming off that match. But no, no, Vader's walking in here. He's 399 pounds of kick ass. Like he's walking in here. He's going to, to, to destroy someone. And that's what he does. And like you pointed out, he's still working in Japan. It's, it's literally uh, going to be seven months before you see him again in wcw and uh he, he until he shows up but guaranteed that dude's anticipated when he shows up it means something when he shows up because you're like i saw that guy like he he just slaughtered z-man in like two minutes and so uh you know that that was the point of it that's that's what he's supposed to do it yeah i'm with you on squash matches i i I, I used to like WWE super WWF superstars when I was growing up. That's exactly what it was for. It was squash matches, like to make even heels, 
you're like, oh, these are obviously elite wrestlers. They've got finishers. They do things. They destroy people when they're in the ring. Like, that's that's what you do. You make them mean something. If they just show up and lose all the time, then who cares? Well, and that's anyway. part of the real. That's part of the realism of it too. I mean, Tom Zink is, is an athletic, strong guy, but I mean, Big Van Vader's Big Van Vader. You look at the two side by side. I mean, it it, it happened as it probably would in real life, in my opinion. So, I mean, Rob, do you have anything I, to add? About I don't know Vader? what you. I, I was gone when you started. Don't, the one thing I, the one eternal thing that. Re- that I remember from this match is like them going on and on about the mask and the steam and all that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Will brought that up with uh, JR just like being obsessed with that. He yeah. sold that. He sold it, man. But yeah, I remember watching it. He, he, he's like, it's not, it's just, he just put it down the steam's kind of was like, man, he's right. Where is that? <laughs> Holy cow. That's. <laughs> That's like I'll, I'll be honest. The last time, the last time we showed it on the cast watch party, I was like, "So who does set that off?" Like I was kind of watching it, like because he doesn't do anything. Like he just has his little V's, and he's just like dancing yeah. around. And so I'm like, I don't know. This is before Peter Jackson. And this is before Lord of the Rings and all that too. So we were like, "Dang, oh. I'm like, what? You say that? <laughs> is there a cord? <laughs> is there a cord? Jr. said that's not connected to anything. Uh, James Lawrence saying. says Vader 2 also <laughs> ripped off Cactus Jack's ear. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that was the guy. But uh, yeah. What, yeah. one thing I do remember about Vader also is that when he does later get into a feud with Sting, like, I don't know. Maybe maybe if when we get there and we ever talk about it, like, everybody's going to crap on the booking of this. But I remember being thrown off by those matches because I expected Sting to have the like, well, he's the good guy. Like he he comes back and he wins and he's he's great. He's Sting and he doesn't. Like Vader just beats the snot out of Sting, like constantly. Like Vader like dominates Sting. And uh and you're like, oh man, this is this is no bueno. Like I I really, I really like Sting and Invaders murdering yeah. him too. And um, Vader knocks Ric Flair's front teeth out, man, in their match. Yeah, that? yeah, that's true. Yeah, yes, Sting, Sting and Vader is one of my just because I I lived it as a child is one of my favorite feuds, wrestling feuds of all time. Just because, I mean, I remember. At Super Brawl one year, they had a strap match. I don't remember exactly which one, um, but it like I don't even think it was for a title, and it was like the main event, and it was like it was insane. I mean, it was definitely the greatest strap match of all time. But like those dudes, just they had some really good chemistry, and their feud was off the charts, in my opinion. Because as I said, you know, I was a kid. Vader was a scary dude in real life. Like I was really scared of him and sting was the ultimate baby face. And so that feud was just so much to me, the perfect culmination of what wrestling should be good versus evil, pure good versus pure evil. Both of them were talented like crazy and could tell a good story in and out of the ring. And, and yeah, we need to get to that eventually someday where we can focus on that. But, um, well, I agree because I think even though it's like we were kids, I mean, the one thing that I remember taking away from it and like still to this day, the reason it stands out is like I remember Vader beating Sting 
And at the time, it was the first time I'd ever seen like, and, and Sting did an interview, I think, afterwards, as far as I, I recall, but like, it was the first time, you know, I'm used to seeing like, the good guy doesn't always win. And like, the good guy has to take his lumps too. And it was like, not like somebody crotch punch Sting or something from behind or pulled the tide. So it was just like, Vader just beat the guy. And it was just like, it was a, it was a, I don't know, it was a awakening for me in my childhood. Yeah. You learn that good guys don't always win. And that was when I decided I was going to be a Vader. Before I wanted to be a Sting, but then I was like, I'm going to be a Vader. I want a mask that steam comes out when it's not even connected to anything. Funny thing too, yeah. that uh, Will, do, Will does not catch the Star Wars reference here. This, the who? Oh, is that like a Spock thing? <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess it is. I was going to say that's a joke, but no, actually, yeah, I guess he is doing that thing. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, Curtis Butler says the Vader versus Katniss Jack matches are some of the most fun matches I've ever seen. I do recall them facing off and they beat the hell out of each other. All right, we can't talk about Vader all night either, but this is why this pay-per-view was a lot better than I think it now I think this pay-per-view is a lot better than it had any right to be. But um, moving on, you get the Freebird interview with uh, Hayes and uh, J- J- is that Jimmy Garvin? Yeah, and uh, this is not the Freebirds I recall, but there they are, all glammed up. And uh, Michael Hayes is good. Hold on now. Now, this is the Freebirds. I mean, Jimmy Garvin was always the fourth Freebird, so this not this not a... Well, I'm thinking like Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Buddy uh, Roberts. They were the three, but Jimmy Buddy Roberts was always the fourth Freebird. Even even in early days, like if you look at like Freebird Road and the old thing, Jimmy Garvin every always made a little cameo. They always felt like he was the uh, I don't know through booking or whatever, but Jimmy Garvin is a legit Freebird. All right, I'm sorry that I offended yes. you, Robert. Um, so I will say that you do get a sense of like, even even in this weirdness, and I don't mean this for any other reason than just like, I remember the the Freebirds being like also Confederate flag waving dudes and they're like, like littered, skittered looking guys. And here they're like glammed up. Like they've gone like glitter eyeshadow and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but uh, there there's a, uh, Michael Hayes does have a really good promo here. And I just was going to say that, that he did a great job. He has that like really cool line where he says like, we're going to win. And there's two things you can do about it. Live with it and learn to love it. And I just, I don't know, for some reason that delivery on that line really got me, but uh, unfortunately for them, they're up against the Steiners. And uh, I will say Dave Meltzer gave this three and a uh, quarter stars, uh, but the Steiners win with the second, belly to belly victory of the evening when uh uh they they deliver one there and uh you know that's that i mean it was just kind of uh honestly after everything else we've seen i mean this one didn't stand out like fully to me um but uh maybe you guys have more for me than that no i mean uh i'll I'll answer I'll answer Jay Cow's question because now it's relevant. He asked who my favorite tag team was. It's the Steiners. So I love this match just because it was the Steiners. But, um, yeah, not really a lot at stake again. I mean, I sound like a broken record, I know, but it's 
there's not a lot at stake and not a lot of a whole lot of storytelling it's hard to really get the buy-in so uh i think it was a good match because all four guys know what they're doing and they can do it at a high level but yeah this i i and it has nothing to do with anything other than just historically i'm not a fan of this version of the free birds um I think Cornette even calls them the fabulous fake birds at this point. And yeah, uh, suck it, Robert. I, Curtis sorry, Butler, by the way, side the, note in the chat saying, I'm sorry, this is the great value version of the free birds. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, listen, that's no, listen, that's no disrespect. That's no disrespect. Value on version of the free birds won the, the, the world tag team championship. They won the world tag titles and they lost it to the Steiners. This was a rematch. That's fine. David Arquette was world champion. Now, I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Oh that, come on! You gonna go go there? Like that's the same. Like that. Like this version. Well, I mean, if you're gonna use championships to validate something, I'm just saying. WCW title. I'm saying. Oh, I'm saying historically, this is not the version. When you tell me, when you say, close your eyes and imagine the fabulous Freebirds, I do not picture this in any like any form or fashion. I picture the the leather jackets, rock and roll. Not not glam rock freebirds. So that's all I'm saying. That's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, like uh, Bad Street well, USA freebirds. You're, you're young pups, and 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 I remember in the even in the 80s when the when the freebirds were Terry, Michael, and Buddy. That from time to time Jimmy would still join in, and he was always the fourth member. And uh, oh he no, wasn't I'm not always there. I'm present. not. I'm not. I'm not. Nobody's arguing. arguing with the history. They're just saying this ain't the cool version of the Freebirds. I'm free trying to birds, say it's bro. a great value brand of the Freebirds. I'm saying this is a real, true, legitimate version of the Freebirds that won the World Tag Team Championship, the lost to the Steiners, and this is the rematch. That's we're not I'm talking saying. about. I love we're not Curtis talking Butler about in the chat too. It's not eyeliner. It's face paint, just like football players wear. <laughs> the Steiners. Okay. Back when you I, thought you Rick compare, was the crazy one from Curtis Butler. Compare them to football too. players. I. I don't know when the last time I saw football players covered in glitter, but okay, I, I can see what you're saying. It's not glitter, okay? It's stardust. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, what did uh, Wade Keller have to say? I'm sure you're interested. He said uh, a methodically paced match, which saw the Freebirds work the crowd like never before. The Steiners were off a bit, not executing it some is. of their trademark moves. That's a backflip, belly-to-belly by Rick on Hayes, followed by a cover by Scott, led to the three-count. He also gave it three-and-a-quarter stars, so not a bad rating from either guy, like a like an above-average rating from both guys. But I don't know. This is another one of those things where it's like a belly-to-belly a, a -belly ends the thing. But come on, at this time, I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and try to join the J. Cal and uh, Will Club and be all like, are we best friends? No. Yeah, they're best friends. That's great. That's fine. But Scott so Snyder was not my favorite. Not my, I'm jealous. Okay. You're jealous. I am jealous. Um, Scott Snyder wasn't my favorite wrestler at the time, but I will argue till the end of time that like at this time probably the frankensteiner was the greatest like finishing move of all time so i was very disappointed that that did not happen oh every every steiner move frankensteiner the steiner line the steiner kick steiner toe drop toe hold everything was steinerized it was great i loved it but i will say there out when i think of the steiners i actually like rick steiner better and i think rick steiner is one of the most undervalued <laughs> oh i'm sorry <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Do you need some some glitter face paint to uh, wake you up? If I put some glitter on, is that going to interest you suddenly? Glitter's uh, not going to do nothing, but a little dash of stardust will do a lot. <laughs> As I was saying, I think Rick Steiner is one of the most undervalued guys in history. Um, I think we understand his value because we we lived a lot of it, but um, you know that that's just my take on it. But yeah, I think I mean this wasn't the Steiner's best match of, of all time or anything like that, but. I, I enjoy and am entertained whenever I see the Steiners in a match. But this was apparently the pay-per-view of belly-to-belly uh, -belly suplexes and cross bodies off the top rope because this was another one of those. It sure was. I'm ready to move on from this match because this is causing some division. I don't know if it's, it's drinking or late night or whatever, but <laughs> this is oh, threatening man. to tear oh, our podcast man. apart. Oh, <laughs> oh, now we're not moving on. <laughs> I just remember, oh, man. Oh, man. I, 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 the Freebirds have always been one of my favorite, and I have always felt that this version of the Freebirds was a legitimate, very, very good version, and their title run was a lot of fun watching it. They had some great okay. Rob, and, and Doc, this listen, Doc, listen to me. Though, in the history of the Freebirds, if you got to got to rank like a one through four version of the Freebirds, where does this one rank? Well, I'd rank it one out of one because there's only one version, and it's Michael Hayes. Oh, my God. All right. Anyway. Roberts and Jimmy Jam Garvin. There's a Horseman interview with Wyndham, Arn, and Sid. Ollie's there. No Ric Flair. That We're going to skip past that. We're going to move right on to JYD, Eligante, and Paul Orndorff. Uh, they end up defeating uh, Barry Wyndham, Arn Anderson, and Sid by DQ when Junkyard Dog gets tossed over the top rope. And my immediate reaction, by the way, was, what? That, that was it. Uh, I, I did find this fun, though. I'll give you this. Uh, Dave says, if there's one thing I could say with certainty, it's that Eligante will make this company lots of money someday, assuming they don't push him too fast and burn him out before he actually learns to work. Which coincidentally is ways, exactly what they did. That's what's really funny. Yeah. He says, in some ways, this was the worst match on the show. Uh, but I think that the Sid Eligante program can draw one huge house somewhere down the road, assuming they wait a long time to deliver it. Which is everything they did not do, by the way. But yeah, we, can <laughs> assume, gave, uh, we can assume he, he didn't even rank this one. Did not read that. Yeah, it uh, it's terrible. Like it, it just uh, uh, what does Wade say? Uh, action was good. Uh, Eligante was never legally tagged in. He did make physical contact once when he shoved some of the horsemen. Vicious was great at getting heat, but actually kind of baby face heat. JYD was thrown over the top rope to end the match. One and uh, three quarter stars is what Wade gave it. Uh, but yeah, that's so disappointing. It's the horseman, dog. It's the horseman. No, it's not. This wasn't. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> These no, these horsemen did not have stardust. Okay, that's the real horsemen had stardust. 
Listen, Rob, I mean, what did you, so, so as a guy who was, who was around during this time, I'm interested in, in what your thoughts are. So you've seen the variations of the horsemen. You've seen it go, go from, uh, you know, like uh, obviously like JJ's managing Flair, Art and Tully and Oli. You've seen it go to like uh, Sting jumps in. You've seen it go to, well, the before Sting, I guess Luger jumped in, right? So uh, Wyndham's in there. Like, but now you've got this version that's Oli, and it's he's managing. He's in the place of JJ. Like, I'm just going to tell you just straight up. I was listening to this with like Jr. He was like, "Man, we didn't give enough credit where credit was due, and like we should have worked to get Tully back in there." Uh, this was. This just wasn't right. Shame on us. Like that's that's what Jr. says. Like it's just like and where's JJ? So like you've got Oli managing. It's Ric Flair who's who can't even be bothered by the way to be in the promos or anything. Um, and it's just Barry Wyndham and it's uh, Arn Anderson and Sid Vicious. Like where where where's your head at for the Four Horsemen during this time? Because that's that's your boys, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for for many of us, the essential components of the Horsemen were were Arn and Rick, uh, JJ to some degree, and then you had the 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 revolving door. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, the best version, and there's some debate on this. I mean, you've got the first version was great with Arn, Oli, Tully, and Rick, but the best version, as far as I'm concerned, was Rick, Arn, uh, Tully, and Barry Windham. And then uh, there, there have been other versions of this. I mean, I, I, I'm going to be one of those ones who would say that I wish they had done more with Paul Roma, man. I like Paul Roma. I think he got a good look and he gets a bad rap in retrospect. And I know that Flair and them don't have a lot of good things to say about him, but I think he's a victim of bad booking and, and, and all that stuff. But, uh, but I, I never really felt uh, Sid as a, um, as a horseman. And again, I mean, in those days in 1990, as a kid, for me, it was only important that that the most important pieces were were Arn and, and Rick. So, um, I don't know. What's your thoughts on that, Will? I, I mean, I I joke about it. The Four Horsemen, there. I agree with you in the sense that when Arn and Rick are there, there's validation. Um, but yeah, to me, without Tully, it doesn't feel like the real Four Horsemen. It feels like another like knockoff. So, especially during this pay-per-view, I mean, you see this match. It's a non-finish, DQ finish. No real storyline. You got a gimmick in there with El Gigante. It just didn't – it didn't feel like it had the gravitas of, of, a, of a four horsemen match. You know what I mean? Like, there should be some, some – a level of – I mean, the same way that you talk about the world title, when you think about the four horsemen, it should have that same – prestige just because of what they built with that that stable and it was just not there and it's just disappointing when i know a lot of the history and i've seen the four horsemen at at their peak to watch a match like this and to see the promo they cut earlier in the night and you know the promo rick flair wasn't there in the promo and it just didn't have that same level of you know like i said prestige and so this match just didn't do anything for me if anything it like soured my view a little bit of this iteration of the four horsemen just because they couldn't even squeeze out like uh, anything interesting you know what i mean 
Yeah. And I think too, like, like there's something about there, there was something organic about Arn Tully, Rick and, and Barry where they were, they really were, they really were really in real life. They were buddies. They really lived everything together. And they, and that's, that never seemed to quite be replicated. Now I thought that they kind of got close to it with uh, Benoit and Dean Malenko. I don't know. Maybe y'all thought that too, um, that they sort of captured some of that where it felt like it was important. Maybe it was just different because we hated the NWO and we hated Bischoff so much then, but, uh, but yeah, Sid, I never I actually really heard a lot of arguments about that. Um, cause, cause I loved that version. I did. Yeah. I love Malenko and Benoit. And it's because I, where I forget where I was hearing this argument. Um, I think it was Wade Keller and like Todd Martin. They were having this argument, like Wade Keller saying, and I'm sorry if I stepped on you, Rob, but, no, Wade Keller was saying like he never considered that like a legit version of the four horsemen. He kind of stopped after the JJ Barry Tully and Arn and Rick <coughs> version. But um like Todd Martin was a big fan of the Benoit and Malenko version. And um and he was he was saying that because for some people the four horsemen represented the elite. Like it was like the elite wrestlers. And so I think for Keller, his point was that like Malenko and Benoit never seemed like the party animal types, like the, you know, like the wild knights, like uh, super upper echelon members of society or whatever that like the others did. Um, so, so I think that's the like discussion. So it's interesting. I, no, no, I, I, I was totally on board and it was here in Greenville, South Carolina, by the way, where they did that, like where they brought them back, you know, where Arn was managing and Malenko, Benoit and Mongo were there and Ric Flair made his big return and stuff like that. So, um, Oh, I like that. Like but anyway, most emotional nights, man. And maybe that's the, what I'm recalling. I, I get, I, I totally get what they're saying, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, to, to, to tie back into bash 90, I, I just never, to me like this, I mean, as long as flair and, and Arn are in it, it's, and as long as they say it's horsemen, it's horsemen, you know, but, uh, you know, Curtis Butler's paraphrasing Arn, And I do remember Arn saying that the first three years are really the, the, the the benchmark and JJ Dillon is part of that and that's true but but you know I mean Arn and uh and and Flair were in the ring there with with Mongo and and Dean and Benoit and, and that was a really vibrant time for the Horsemen even though it wasn't the same feel but as you know this version didn't seem like a it, it to me it's like the Horsemen were I mean they weren't at the I mean they have a role in this too I mean you, you know you got Oli being having the stipulation here in the main event that we're going to be talking about and all that. So it's not like the, the, the horsemen still weren't cohesive and functioning like they always did, but Sid just never felt right, man. And, and, and come to find out it, it wasn't right. You know, we, we learned that just through some antics that happened later on and, and through, through some interviews and that kind of thing. I was going to say he and R never really, uh, not, he and R were not the best of friends. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't really stick together. Actually, they did stick together, and that's so. <laughs> maybe that's the problem. <laughs> oh man, seen a lot of hate in the uh, chat for Ellie Gante, but I I'll tell you what. I mean, the thing I, I saw it. 
Like, I get what, like, Meltzer was saying about him in this match. Like, Arn, Arn sold for that dude, like, nobody's business. Like, Arn Anderson is just the best. He is just, he is just such a good wrestler. But, Correct. like, he looks astonished. Like, just gobsmacked by this giant man across from him. And, like, like that's money right there. But, yeah. I think what Dave was saying is like, if like, what well, if you gave him a chance to actually try to learn to do anything uh, to, to, to be an attraction like Andre the giant, that maybe he could have been something, but no, they couldn't, there was no patience there. It was just like rushing and rushing him through. Um, next up, you get a uh, Lex Luger interview and then a Paulie and mean Mark interview. I'm just going to keep moving until we get into the match with Lex Luger versus mean Mark Callis. Uh, Meltzer gives it three stars. Uh, say what you will about Uncle Dave. He says here, I see potential in this mean Mark. Great size and athletic ability. Uh, and uh, supposedly the story is, is Bruce Pritchard, like this is the match that he showed to Vince McMahon to say like, we got to get this guy. And then at the, at the time, Vince McMahon was just kind of like, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but let me jump here real quick. Um, the, uh, I don't know. Wade doesn't have much to say. He ends up giving it one and, uh, no, two and three quarter stars. But the important part here is, uh, JR has an interesting story about this, that JR says that he 100% told only like, you guys don't know what you got with this guy. There's not many people that are six nine and move like that dude moves. And, uh, and that only told him, he, he said, Jr. this kid is never going to draw a GD dime. And, uh, as it turns so out, only was right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jr. says he went, he then went. Now this is of course Jr.'s story. So, you know, we're, we're telling it from his point of view, but Jr. says that he then went to Jim Hurd and just in a conversation said, Hey man, mean Mark Callis's contract is up soon. I think this kid is money. Oli doesn't like him. Thinks he's not going to draw any money, but I think we got to use him. And he said that Hurd was just like off in his own world. And it's like, I just back Oli. It's fine. Whatever with this guy, what's he done for us? Nothing. And he's like, yeah, but you haven't done anything for him either. Like he, he, he's not doing it. Like you, you haven't done anything. And, uh, herds like, it's just let him go. And, uh, they offered him some like small amount of money, but Jr. went, Jr. says he behind their backs went to Mark Callis and said, these guys will never use you like you're supposed to be used. They don't know what to do with you. Get out. Like you've got to get out of here. And uh, so uh, me and Mark Callis took the offer that he got from WWF and went over there and uh, then disappeared into obscurity, never to be seen or heard from again. Just became a jobber. Right. And so anyway, that's the story there. But uh, Lex Luger does get the win over uh, me and Mark here. Not with the torture rack. He gets out of that, but uh, does, uh, does end up getting the win. Never saw that coming, did you? Lex Luger beats the Undertaker. 
And little did we know, you know, we had just seen El Gigante and now The Undertaker. Little did we know, WrestleMania 9, these two guys would be squaring off El Gigante in a bodysuit. Oh, my God. That is right. What was he called then? Um, John Gonzalez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this match, the only thing I really remember from watching this match was that he almost got him in the torture rack, right? Didn't he? Was that this match? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, he threw him up to the torture rack, but, like, he hits, like, the ref or something on accident. Oh, he kicked Paul the ref through. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah other than that, um, memorable. Yeah, yeah, nothing nothing too much to this. So we can move right on to Doom uh, beats the Rock and Roll Express. I'm going to be honest with you. This was another one that I was just kind of, like, not blown away by. Two and uh, three quarter or two and a quarter stars from Dave Meltzer. Uh, Wade Keller says uh, the match was a solid tag match, but the fans did not get into it as they were already at this point anticipating Flair Sting. Uh, top rope shoulder block by Butch Reed on Gibson led to the pin. Three and a half, he gives it. Um, so just like shouting those guys out. I know a lot of people, by the way, hate Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and those guys, but I also know that they legitimately – do talk to these people that JR regularly had Dave Meltzer on his show. And Dean Ambrose, the first person he went to was Wade Keller. And so it was, it's like, I do believe they have inside information. A lot of the time I know they're considered dirt sheets and, and but they've also been covering this business since the early eighties, Dave Meltzer longer. And uh, so I feel like they've got valid. Yeah, they they should be respected. I know that that uh, they can be, especially Meltzer can be outspoken sometimes, but they they have to be respected. You know, they if they, you know, you don't have to agree with with. We're talking about performance sports here, and just like we can sit here and talk about baseball and football and have different opinions on different things about who would do this and what this value had. Um, the point is, those guys, Keller and Meltzer, are two of the most informed people in the history of wrestling. Up there with Jay Cow, he's he's one of them too, man, and and they have to be respected. So, when they say something, you don't have to agree, but you ought to respect and, and consider what they're saying and, and give it a lot of weight. Here I am. I've got I've got Wade Keller. I've got Dave Meltzer. I've got uh, Jay Cow, Bruce Mitchell, and Todd Martin. Those those are my like my five. Like that's my my Mount Rushmore. Even though there's more than four. That's my Mount Rushmore of like, let's listen to their opinions on things. That's the, and I like Dave, Dave LaGreca too. And, and, uh, and of all the, of all the, um, of all the PWI contributors, Solomon, I think is, it's got an important voice as well. Uh, but you know, you don't always have to, but you gotta, you gotta, you've got to listen to them. If you want to, if you intend to be a student of the sport, these are the professors. So. And with guys like Meltzer and, and Wade Keller, I mean, they're, if nothing else, just the archive. I mean, we're using their notes from an event that was 30 years ago. Um, they've been doing this a long time. And just the archive of records that they have kept is enough to you know, be impressive. Well said. I mean, they, they have, they provide like a lot of, like, I feel like you, for this event, they provided a lot of context that I did not have. I did not realize half the stuff was going on that, you know, like I just viewed this as like my kid self. I had no access to these people. I didn't know anything about them. 
And so uh, it, it was interesting now to, to research it through their eyes and they're already digging into the business and seeing this side of things like the whole flair drama that's kind of hanging over all of this, like Ric Flair, the biggest star in the business arguably is considering leaving the NWA at this time. Yeah, I had no in, a, in a weird place, by the way, I got to throw in there that, that just even from every story that I can get, what a weird place to be in. And we're getting to this match right now that Ric Flair this time is a dude who is, well, he's Ric Flair. And he's also like, I promise that I'm going to give this kid like I'm going to drop the title to this kid sting. I'm going to do it. And, and I I'm honoring that promise that I made and I refuse to give it to anybody else. It's going to him. And also like, I feel like the company that I'm representing while I do that is about to toss me aside. Like that's legitimately like any, any other story you get is that like flair very much had the idea that, WCW at this time did not give a damn about Ric Flair. Like this was supposed to be like Ric Flair is no more. Like we're changing with the times. Let's move on. And despite all that, Ric Flair is still also honoring this fact that he's like, I'm going to do the the thing and, and hand this title over honorably. And uh, I don't know, man, that, that's just a big deal to me, despite like what anybody could say. Like, I think that that's a, that says something about what this business meant to people. And, and like, like even beyond like every other aspect of their lives, like this business demanded respect. Like they were like, I can't disgrace this business. I could be like some loud mouth party animal and like ruin every other aspect of my life, but I will not. I will not disgrace this business. And that's a, that's a weird thing, man. It's just a it, interesting part of the story. Well, I think, I think, I think Ric Flair, uh, I mean, he's a legend for a reason, not just his accomplishments, but his, his smarts and his uh, intuition in the ring and out of the ring. And I think he just wasn't going to give in to the backstage politics that were going on because he, he was smart enough then to know it was bigger than just his career. And so even if he was on his way out and there were question marks there about his future with the WCW or with the title or whatever, I think even then he knew Sting's going to be a big star. He's going to be a guy that that three bearded guys are going to be talking about 30 years from now. That's how big of a star he's going to be. So I'm not going to just take this lightly, even if I'm not committed to this company or the people who are running it or whatever, he respected the title, number one, as we talk about a lot on this show, the prestige of, of a world's title. And the fact that, you know, he promised it to the guy, yeah, but I think it was more than just a promise. I think he promised it to, to Sting because he knew that Sting had the potential to carry it to the future. And I mean, he wasn't, he, we'll probably talk about this, but I mean, he wasn't, this wasn't like the beginning of like a, a, a Sting dynasty or anything like that. I think he drop the title back to Rick seven months after this. But like it, it, I think, I think Rick Flair is just smart enough even in 1990 to know that despite what was going on backstage, I need to do what's right to the fans 
to the business as a whole, to the art of professional wrestling. And I promise it to Sting for a reason. And it wasn't just because he promised it. It was because there was a reason that he promised it. And so him honoring that was just him going with his intuition and his knowledge of the industry and the fans and what was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I see uh, Jason like in the uh, chat and, and God bless you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Um, but it's like it, he says, I, I, Rick didn't have much choice, I don't think. Um, well, the thing is, it's like he did have he did have a way to handle like a, a choice in how he handled this whole process. I mean, we've, we've seen people handle these things poorly, I think. And it's just that he didn't want his backstage BS to interfere with the process of what happening happens with the NWA world's championship. Like he was like, you know, like this isn't working out for us. I'm on the way out, but I'm still going to make sure this changes hands. Even if I disagree or if I'm not on board with everything that's happening, he he's still making sure he shows up to, to deliver the championship to the next rightful owner as he sees it. So I just, I just think that's a, that's a really cool move of him. And that, and that brings us to the main event of the night. Uh, Sting does end up beating Ric Flair for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. It gets a three and three-quarter star from Dave Meltzer. Um, the biggest uh, problem from everybody, um, I think Wade gives it a... Uh, let's see here. Wade gives it a also three and three-quarter stars. Uh but they're both the biggest thing that they give it. Both men had the same thing. That's also, by the way, how I feel like sometimes this is valid. They're like both throwing out their opinions and it's like decently similar. Um, They said that it ended up like it should have been a five-star match. Like people were expecting a five-star match and it ends up being a typical flair match is, is what they both say about it is that uh which makes it hard because sting is coming off of an injury and they've been very careful about how they use him prior to this moment so it's very obvious that flair is carrying this match and he's doing a flair match and uh it works emotionally gets a big pop the crowd is into it uh but they think that you know it's like 16 minutes if you call it the last, uh, I think I saw somebody say, like, if you call it the last three minutes, you got the whole story. Uh, like, it's, there's nothing special particularly about the match as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's just the story that was told here that that matters. So, when I, when I saw this match, I was... 15 years old um, in those days. And, and again, we're, we're talking hindsight here and, and, uh, and I wasn't as old as, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a, 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 an insider writer, a scholar of the sport back then. I was just a fan, but in, in 1990 flair couldn't be beat. I mean, when flair lost the belt, it was newsworthy. He didn't regularly lose the belt. He, his title range were, would last for years, you know, whether, you know, you drop it from time to time to Von Eric or to, Dusty or on a flute to Ronnie Garvin, Ricky Steamboat. He always got it back, but it was not a foregone conclusion that Flair was going to win, the, lose this thing. 
And remember, leading up to this match, Flair had had a series of, of, of main event matches with, with the likes of Lex Luger and some others, mainly Luger, I think, where somehow, some way, the, the, the horsemen always found a way to intervene to protect the title, to protect, keep it on Flair, even at Capital Combat. Now, I know we, we kind of squirm at Capital Combat, but that was like, these were like under impossible circumstances for the horsemen to interfere. And they somehow managed to raise the cage and get in. So as a 15 year old watching this match, I did not, I did not think that sting was going to win this thing. I didn't, I thought they would find another way to do it. And, uh, and so, you know, for me, it was special. I mean, it was really, really a big deal that sting came out. I was completely, I was a flair fan, but, 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 you know, when the title changed hands, it was a newsworthy seismic shift in, in the environment. And, and I remember like being just stunned that night. Um, a lot of people, you know, they would talk about, I think even in the paper, you talk about this would be an upset. And, uh, and in hindsight, we think, well, of course it's not a upset because Sting would eventually come to in the latter years of the, the flair Sting uh, rivalry, especially in the WCW days, Sting would come to dominate it. But that wasn't the case in 1990. And uh, so I just, you know, memory plays a big factor in this. So we got to place ourselves back in Baltimore in July of 1990 and re realize that the world, the landscape was different then. Flair was still on top. Flair still hasn't. Here's another thing I wanted to point out, and, and maybe we'll get to this in some of the epilogue, but Sting getting the belt also has a very historic role to play too because Flair has another title change. Remember at this point, there is a title, a series of title changes that weren't recognized at this point. Harley Race still had the record with seven. Eventually, that would get changed to eight, and Flair was on his sixth title reign. So, when when Sting drops the belt to Flair at a house show the following January, Sting catapults Ric Flair into history, tying Harley Race for the record all time for most title reigns. So, not only is is Flair doing Sting the favor, but Sting is being set up to be a a very important part of Flair's history in the in the in the legacy of the NWA. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, but I thought it was a fantastic match. I thought it was the match of the night that in the in the uh, tag team match between the uh, Midnight Express and the Southern Boys. Um, and it was to me, it was a very special match. It wasn't a typical Flair match because typically Flair didn't lose. Well, and I think it was a, a classic because of the outcome, not necessarily the match itself as the 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 match is a wrestling match in a vacuum it was the outcome and it was the crowd reaction and it's like you're saying it was the context of the fact that oh man we just we just witnessed rick flair losing the title to sting we just witnessed sting winning it for the first time this baby face who's been climbing up the ranks and so the 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 heaviness of that is what mainly catapulted this into becoming a classic um, and so I, I, I see what you're saying there. Um, and that's, and that's where the breakdown is a lot of times when you talk about these guys like Meltzer and Wade Keller, I think the, the detriment of what they do is that they, they, they do analyze the match for the match, which is, it's legit, but you have to look at it in context and you have to look at the storyline. You have to look at the history. You have to look at all the things you just mentioned, Rob, where, you know, there's, there was more of a weight on this match because of the outcome, not just the moves that were done and the, the choreography of the match, but what it meant to the, the arc of, of wrestling history. 
you know? Yep. 100%. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's like even up for argument that this was like a very important moment in wrestling history. Um, and yeah, yeah, Will, you bring up an excellent point. I mean, like maybe maybe Meltzer and Keller are like just trying to 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 rate it right in the moment and and that sort of thing. Um, but at the end of the day, the the parts that matter. I mean, like, dude, you can't tell me. I this is kind of off topic, but sort of not. But like like that Ric Flair Shawn Michaels match where like Ric Flair's career supposedly ended. Uh, you know, and Shawn Michaels delivers the super kick at that WrestleMania. <laughs> like, dude, I lost it. I lost it in that match. And uh, and it does not matter what else came after, what else came before. That match could have been garbage for all I remember. I remember the moment, and it mattered. And that was, that was like sealing the deal. And uh, I know Ric Flair went to TNA and he some crap with tna and whatever maybe it was good or maybe it was bad it doesn't matter like that was like the wrap-up for rick flair as far as i'm concerned as far as his wrestling career is concerned like in in ring performance is concerned and it was beautiful and it's the way it should have gone down and a hundred years from now i just hope that that's the story that carries on and uh, i'll do my part to just make sure that's the part that happens but it's just like with the sting and Ric Flair, it's fun to look back now and see the behind the scenes part of it. But it's also cool that I can only address this as a fan. It's the same reason, dude, that I keep bringing up WrestleMania seven. People can tell me all day long that that pay-per-view is garbage, but I watched it a hundred times as a kid and I freaking love it. And we could talk one day about how, BS it was, but it, uh, I, you know, it, it is what it is. It meant what it meant to me. And I think that this day, when that pinfall happened, when Sting pinned Ric Flair and got that one, two, three, those arms in that crowd went up and people screamed. And even JYD and Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner and everybody, you can't tell me that was all BS. Those guys believed it. They were like, "Holy crap! This is this yeah. is something," and I and I believe it, it was. was. And I know Flair still got a lot of career ahead of him, but we have to agree that by this point in his career, he had more great great matches behind him than ahead of him. This is one of his last great matches. He's got some great stuff in the WWF, man. The the Royal Rumble, of course. His match with Bret Hart is a classic. He'll do some stuff in the WCW with Big Van Vader and with Barry Windham again and uh, uh, and uh, uh, Randy Savage. But this is like one of the last great, really great landmark matches of his career. So for me, gosh, it's in that it's in that book of, cl- of Flair classics, man. This is this is up there. Well, I mean, even if you're talking about like a casual like like these guys are talking about like a typical flare match, whatever, but in the, in the annals of history, like, well, I was just going to say in the annals of history, like they're, they're going to look at like, you know, if you've got like four or five to lay out, yeah, sure. Maybe, maybe he was building up like what a flare match is, but like, this will be the one, this will be the, 
the one I mean, that God, matters. God forbid Flair wrestle a Flair match. That's his style. I mean, wrestlers have a style. They have a style that permeates all of their matches, and Flair has his style. Dude, my yeah. favorite wrestler is Brett the Hitman Hard. I'll say it yeah. every day, and uh, that dude – one of my favorite parts is I could tell you every freaking move that guy was going to nail. Like, I'm I like, just, who, who I does, oh my gosh, who does Flair think he is? Ric Flair? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's like saying, like, you know, we were talking about baseball earlier, but it's like, oh, the Yankees won the World Series and typical, it was a typical Yankees game. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, at the end of nine innings, they had more points and they had more runs. <laughs> it's typical of the Yankees. That's not a, that's not an insult to say it was a typical flair match. I mean, he's a legend for a reason, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I wanted to hit a couple of points before we wrap this thing up. Uh, uh, completely, um, you know, th- this just uh, brought me back in my notes that like, uh, uh, when I was listening to JR's commentary, he he just like established again. He was just like he's like this is not just any passing of the torch. Like he's like Dusty Rhodes told us like it was like the the day that Sting stepped in and like they gave him the spot against Slayer. They were like, oh no, that's that's your boy right there. Like that's that's the guy. And uh, there was a lot of discussion back in the time that Luger should have been the guy. A lot of uh, apparently there was like uh, some dis- discussion on like uh, you you picked the you backed the wrong horse. It should have been Luger. Stinson, do you remember any of that? Do you remember any of that yeah. discussion about? I mean, Luger was in the was was in the title picture when Luger was ousted from the Horseman. Even before that, you know, he was out. You know, he had been he had done some stuff in Florida and had a name that preceded him when he finally made it to the NWA. Uh, and, uh, you know, there had been a lot of pressure. In fact, I think one of the falling out points ultimately when Flair left for the WWF was that uh, um, Heard had insisted that Flair drop the belt to Luger. And uh, Flair said, I'm not doing it. You know, I promise that this thing are very wind and, and, and that's that's who it's going to. So you can and, – and they, you know, they ended up stripping them. But, uh, yeah, Luger – and Luger, you know, if you listen to some of like the shoot interviews that Flair does with RF video and high spots and all that, He's very gracious to, to to Luger. He's not taking anything away from him. He felt he felt like kind of like Eligante, but to a, a lesser extent that he wasn't given the opportunity and booked properly and, and allowed the chance to develop right. Luger would go on to have a fine career, man, and win world championships and, and this and that. But but in Flair's estimation, the, the heir apparent was either Sting or Barry Windham. Boy, um, Rob, well, Rob, go ahead and say what you're going to say, and I had what one last point. What, what last point to make about Great American Bash. And then we've got to get to the after after show. We've got a very specific question I want to tackle with J. Cal, which is I invited him on. But uh, yeah. go, go ahead. Um, th- this is kind of um, – this This really is is sort of a – I know that Flair is going to win the belt one more time from Sting. He, he wins it in really odd fashion. It's at a, it's at a very obscure house show uh, in January of uh, 1991 – He's stripped of the belt after that, not long after. He does – I think he goes to uh, – goes off and does a North Korea show and, and does some does some work out in the, the Orient. But uh, this this loss to Sting really ends the great era of Ric Flair in the NWA. Now, the WCW, by the time Flair comes back, is separate from the NWA. They're not the same entity anymore. Uh, they're, they're well, using- Rob, I don't, I don't want to cut you off, but that was actually just since you're saying that I, I, I want to establish that was actually going to be my main last point was that this feels like 
the last huge title change of the NWA uh, for a period of time. Yeah, for for that that era of the NWA. Like, I mean, even when Flair comes back, it'll be uh, January of 91 that Flair wins it back. And uh, shortly thereafter is the time that, like, there's there's the dispute. Like, uh, WCW yeah. and NWA separate. Flair goes off to New Japan. J-Cal, you may be able to tell us this. He, he, draw, he loses a match to, I, God help me. Katsumi Fujinami, I believe, right? That may be correct. And... But he loses it in such a way that, like, it's like an over-the-top rope kind of yeah. thing or something, and uh, and uh, that's involved in the match. So WCW separates themselves from the decision, and they're like, "Well, that didn't change hands for us." But the NWA says that did change it hands for us, and so that's when yeah. the official, like, that's sort of when the separation happens. But anyway, but this Sting and Flair match is like the the last like big big fight change for the nwa world's heavyweight championship in in that era right one of the things that i kind of hope that that uh that with with renewed interest thanks to nick aldis and tim storm and and the current uh iteration of the nwa is i hope that it will backward project some attention on the very very vibrant years that were the adam pierce years and the years uh right before that because we have some very important um, title work going on and some important reigns that didn't get, unfortunately, because of television, this, that didn't get the attention that it deserves. So hopefully when we have this discussion in 10 years from now, we'll be looking back and saying, now this wasn't the last great thing, but you're right. I think uh, for the time when we're looking at, you know, major promotions and the NWA about to sort of go into a period of wilderness obscurity, unfortunately, uh, th- this is it, man. Uh, they, they, the NWA title goes into some weird, version of like the international title or something like that. I can't quite remember how that was, was uh, drawn out. I remember Flair coming back when he came back and uh, Barry Wyndham wins the belt and Flair presents the belt. And he, he, prior to that, he said, Hey, we're here fighting tonight for the title that I never lost. Of course, by that point, it really wasn't the same anymore. Um, but uh, yeah, this is it, man. This is the end of the, this is not the end of the, of the NWA era by any stretch, but this is the bookend of the Ric Flair era of the NWA. Exactly. Um, so, uh, welcome Turbo to the chat, John Blaine, Curtis Butler. Thank you, everybody, for joining up. I mean, the chat's just like building back up, and we appreciate you guys for joining us. We're going to end the podcast portion of this thing right now because we try to keep it to like a relevant amount of time that the podcast can appreciate it. But uh, we're going to move on to the after after dark section of this live show because this conversation is far from over we just welcomed in if you're if you're not uh, seeing us on youtube we just rep we just brought in uh from the alliance block jay cal is in the house and we're about to hit some like some listener questions some viewer questions and we thought no better way to handle this than with uh one of the experts so we've got doc robert stitz and we've got hey it's will but daily we got the alliance watch jay cal here and we've got oh. me who is the least of all but uh we're gonna we're gonna be talking and we're gonna be discussing some things and i i don't know i i don't know how else to end this except to say we got some teasers we're gonna be talking about kurt angle we're gonna be talking about the nwa world's heavyweight championship and its legacy 
And uh, you guys, if you want to hear that part of it, you got to start showing up live. You got to show up with us on the YouTube channel. We appreciate everybody who listens. Uh, that is uh, our our stints in four. Is that right on all the social medias? Oh no no no! It's uh, uh, at our stints in four on Twitter. On Instagram, you can find me at rd stints in four. On TikTok, well, you can't find me on TikTok yet because I'm not there. MySpace, you can find me as Tom. <laughs> And, and on Facebook, uh, uh, Robert Stinson. But oh, my just, content comes on to, this I, channel. This is the NWA podcast. And and by YouTube. the way, com, uh, slash the NWA pod, this son of a gun. I swear. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> Did I mess up something? <laughs> no, bro, you're fine. Will, where can people find you? I'm just trying oh, to wrap up say, the part for them. That's what I was going to say, man, for all of yours. If you if you tune into Piper's Notes this Friday, you're going to see the one and only Jake Cow as our special guest this, oh, this Friday. So, snap. Uh, a fantastic episode. And I think we actually cover Bad Street USA as our video of choice. So, uh, what? no better person to cover that than the one and you only You mean the Jay actual Freebirds, not the, the BS Freebirds? You bite tried your to pass tongue. off this you time. Bite your tongue right now because I got Jake out of the house right now. He's going to get my back on this. <laughs> Will, where can people find you online? Uh, at Hey It's Will with one L pretty much everywhere except TikTok. I'm at Real Hey It's Will. And uh, yeah, don't, don't forget to check out our website. I don't know if Gary, you were going to say this, but uh, we launched a new website, the nwapod.com. We got an online store. We're selling some NWA fam merch basically at cost. Uh, Rob's losing a lot of money on that. So buy it while you can at the <laughs> prices. And um, yeah, we're doing a giveaway um, probably in the next few days. I think we're going to give away, if you're signed up for our mailing list, we're going to give away a free piece of NWA merch. If you've already bought some, then you can just pick up another one. If you got a shirt, you can get a mug now or something that but um go check out the website there's a few different ways to support us gary i'll let you you cover all that stuff but um yeah well no i mean uh, will will did an excellent job there i was uh you know it, it it's just I, i'm sending out the tweet just reminding people that we're about to hit the after after show like folks if you're listening to this right now we're trying to do a better job and this is completely all on me i take full blame the uh podcast portion of things i know it's been a lot like it's just like we've just been throwing up the live shows that could go like three hours so we're trying to like chop this thing down so we want to cover things like a specific story like the great american bash 90 which we just did but if you want to stick around for the actual discussion like the hardcore topics like we're about to get into like kurt angle and nwa like oh. what am i talking about where you're gonna have to you're gonna have to jump in you're gonna have to have this discussion with us when you're live on youtube and i know not everybody can make it we do appreciate you on podcast uh but if if you can, you, you you gotta you gotta try to join us live on YouTube. We are doing giveaways. If you just like what we do, the nwapod.com helps you out. Like you can do a monthly donation, and that's just because you're just feeling extra super generous uh, with people like WWE Front Row. But you can also just try to buy us a beer. It just costs like three bucks or something. Like you can just do a one-time donation. It's just a nice thing you can do. But also, don't forget, like Will said, the hashtag NWAFM merch is like at cost and it's five dollars flat rate shipping so you can order like 50 freaking items and you can get that stuff shipped to you for like five bucks it's a it's a terrible idea but 
do it. <laughs> yeah, and you we're, can. We're, we're regretting it a little bit. So cash in before we change our minds and smarten up. Yeah, now, you uh, can do uh, it. Ryan because Romano we're just trying to build this community. Hashtag NWA fam represents more than just us. I was going to say, Ron Romano lives in Australia. This joker is single-handedly bankrupting <laughs> this is the NWA <laughs> podcast, man. <laughs> the Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan, for bankrupting us. No, we, we're just trying to build a community, bro. That's what we're trying to do. I am at this is Gary Horde, and we are at the NWA pod everywhere you can find us. Uh, just try, like, if you're hearing us, try to come subscribe to the YouTube channel. Give us a five star rating on iTunes. Get us in front of more people. Support people like Jay Cal and the Alliance blog. It's uh, Alliance dash wrestling.com is am i right jay cal that is correct all right and that is it for the podcast portion of this thing until next time enjoy your gravy cake